When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Good Music Podcast, a show where we discuss artists, songs, and talk about why we love them. New episodes every Monday morning at 9 a.m. Central. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook and become a patron to gain access to exclusive content. And now, on with the show. Another episode of the Good Music Podcast. I'm Lucas. I'm Grant. And I'm Ethan. And if you would consider yourself a lover of good music like we are, you need to subscribe to this podcast. You also need to follow us on Instagram or Facebook. And there you can follow uh, what's coming next, what's coming down the pike. And you can DM us your favorite band and they just might end up on the podcast. But today we are talking about rush we're in our second volume of rush this is one of lucas's four pillars so lucas kind of tell us about what this volume two is going to bring us and kind of give for the people that haven't listened to volume one yet um kind of give us a refresher of rush kind of as a band just like a two minute synopsis yeah so um Obviously, the best thing that, that you guys can do is to go listen to our first episode. Um, it was actually the last episode of last year. So it's been almost a complete year since we did the previous one. And it was my last one with my original co-host. So it just kind of shows how much has changed in mm-hmm. the year. Um, Rush is a Canadian uh trio prog rock group in my opinion the greatest of the prog rock groups or prog in general they are really the like the only prog band to like get large international superstardom mm-hmm without really compromising their sound. They never had a we're going mainstream record like a lot of like say Genesis or Yes did. Um they really came to become the biggest cult band of all time. That is true. As far as a band that a band that never relied on radio yet became a you know stadium act. Yeah. And, you know, they really um, upped the ante on not just what Prague could do, but rock in general could do. They really brought a level of um, technicality and instrumentation that um, a lot of bands have been trying to catch up with ever since. You'll find that of all of the great musicians, 
like the people that are really great and are the great songwriters, like they all acknowledge that Rush was one of the great bands of all mm-hmm. time. Just watching watching the opening of their documentary, uh, Beyond the Light and Stage, and just seeing, you know, they they start off with like a very obvious one, Mike Portnoy, who's like, you know, Dream Theater is pretty much just like uh, a heavy metal clone of Rush. But then you start getting into people like Kirk Hammett and Taylor Hawkins and Gene Simmons and Billy Corgan. And you're just like, wait, what? Mm-hmm. You know, I can maybe understand like the heavy metal or the prog guys being into them, but even just like your normal pop guys, um, your standard rock and roll guys all acknowledge that like Rush was the gold standard. Yep. And and so and you did mention that they never did really have the sellout, you know, radio hit album, but that isn't to say that they didn't change their sound. There are different sort of quote unquote eras of Rush as well. Right? We have we have oh, the yes. early era. A, a lot of that is what we're going to talk about today, and we of course have a keyboard era, and then we have that whatever happened in the 90s. I don't even know what to call that. And then I would say that was the uh the butt rock phase. Yeah. yeah, and then you kinda have the sort of return to the basics kind of conclusion of their career. The pro- yeah. Uh and each of those phases after this episode will be its own episode. So we'll be kind of doing a very meticulous walk through their discography. Um, in the following episodes about Rush. But yeah, they are a band that every episode they were seeking to mix things up, to change things up. They were definitely not ones that when they found the formula, they stuck with it. Mm-hmm. You know, even even within, I guess what you would call the broad strokes of certain eras, there's still significant change happening in every record there are i would say there's no record where i would say this is the sequel of this record Uh, it's every with maybe one exception what would what would that be and the only one where i would say there's the most similarity would be between uh farewell to kings and hemisphere i would say those two I would say those two probably partner the I, best. I would do. I would say that twenty one twelve would be the completion of Caress of Steel. But I would say stylistically, they're not very similar. Okay. There's definitely a large shift afterwards. That's because. I mean, because there's just there's there's a very much a a spreading of wings and with full confidence moving into pure prog territory where 2112 is kind of half in one and half in the other. Yes. You've got the giant prog epic of the title track, but then you have five songs after that are very straight off straightforward rock songs with not too much prog in it where once you get to farewell, it's all or nothing prog, mm-hmm. and really hemispheres is much of the same way, just on an even more complex scale. It's not that stylistically yeah. it's changed; it's just a farewell to kings, but bigger and better. That's true. It is bigger. 
I wouldn't use batter. I'd say it's better. I I'd say batter in like <laughs> I know, know the good turn in the Ethan good. Has no idea what we're yeah. talking about because he's not familiar with the order of Rush discography. I'm sure. That is true. <laughs> so normally on a volume two, we would talk about. I mean, so far we've talked about live performances. Why? Why did you? Yeah. What are we doing today? And why did you choose not to do live? So, um, I guess I should clarify and say that not every volume two is going to be a live. Um, some other volume twos that we've done, like with the Beatles, we looked at their their very beginning stage, yes. looked at the their rise to power, and just looked at about a period of their first two years. Um, with Coldplay, we did a um, a look at their more introspective and moodier side just because I wanted to. Yep. <laughs> and, um, you know, the original plan for the Iron Maiden episode was going to be what we're doing with Rush, which is looking at the mm-hmm. epics, the big songs. Mm-hmm. Um, to me, why I wanted to do this is first off, um, Rush is not known as much for being this crazy live group. Now, obviously, they are great live. Not saying that at all. But they're not – I wouldn't say that they're different live. Where you have these other bands where it's like in order to really understand them as a whole, you have to hear what they're like yeah. live. It's almost like it's you have – like with Queen – You've got Queen in the studio and Queen live that sound very different yeah. from each other, but are both necessary to understand the whole picture. So what qualifies as an epic? Um, so an epic for me is anything that hits the eight-minute mark. Oh, wow. Now, um, or anything that has multiple movements. Box epic. <laughs> yeah <laughs> so if it's if it's um you know obviously it's yeah. got it it has to have some length now rush is actually not as heavy on like i guess what you would call like serious epics not in the way that like say a band like dream theater is where i would say almost half of their discography goes past the 10 minute mark yeah. Um Rush it actually is surprisingly not like that. They really only have three big epics. That being twenty one twelve, uh Cygnus X one and Fountain of Lamb Neff, as far as kind of like big sidelong pieces. Yes. Um and not Two, I would say they probably only have about five or six that cross the 10 minute mark in general. Mm-hmm. So it's actually, I found that it was less than I originally thought. Mm-hmm. So, you know, when I say the word epic, I mean that, you know, it's, it's not in your typical, you know, rock song structure. It's not divided up into straight verse, chorus, uh, guitar, solo, outro. But it has more of a more of a 
a bigness to it. There's a a grand direction that the song is heading in. Usually there's either a big idea or a big story that's being told. Right. And um, it just, it has this big scope. Mm-hmm. It was rushed. And so that's why I'm qualifying as an epic. But all of these songs do crack uh, the nine minute mark, which I would have even considered the eight minute mark to be good right. enough. Was Rush like the first? I guess is it weird to ask like the the history of epics? Because no, in fact, um, it's actually I think this will be good because this will help us inform on where epics were at that time. So Rush is actually part of the second wave of prog rock. And they're really kind of the ones that helped keep it going because there was an original big prog movement in the late 60s and early 70s. Like what bands? Um, That would be Genesis and Yes and Emerson, Lake and Palmer and King Crimson. King Crimson, I would say, was the first true prog band. You know, you could, if you wanted to get kind of i guess debatable you could go all the way back to say pink floyd as being a prog rock group which people very loosely categorize them as prog just because they are experimental and it's kind of like what else do you call them that's true (laughs) but they're not prog in the way that most prog rock bands are categorized as far as like the very complex uh, musicianship and the um the the complex time signatures and the and the big you know solos or the or the giant uh storytelling Mm -hmm. they're a bit more conceptual but um i mean guess you know like if if you wanted to get technical you could kind of say oh well you know that's where prog rock begins but if you wanted to be uncontroversial, you would say that King Crimson was the beginning. And from the gate, they had sidelong epics. But theirs was very intellectual. The first wave of Prague is a lot harder to get into, although we will for sure dive headfirst into it because that's some of my favorite music of all time is that first wave stuff. But it's very much more... Um, jazz and classical influenced it has less to do with rock than those genres it's not meant to have a lot of great hooks it's not meant to um have these big arena sized sounds um it's definitely meant more to be very um i guess um what's trying to think of the word um condescending almost but that's that's a bit too harsh of a word um it's very conceptual it's very um highbrow mm, yeah it's not meant for the common listener or rush was a big turning point to where prog music for the first time became accessible and became something that even your normal rock guy could get into it's the reason why of all the prog bands, they are the biggest mm-hmm. and the most well-respected is because they were very approachable, mm-hmm. even though 
they were still very experimental and very much still um, got into very um, tough arrangements. They still had rock at the center of right. it. I mean, all all it takes is listening to the first song on our list, and you're just like, this is this is a rock song first. These are rock riffs, just you know, ratcheted up a little bit. Right, and and a lot of the lyrics that they would write for some of their um, non-epic songs were still very relatable, you know. Yeah, and even their epics, there was always a, um, there was always a message that they wanted the average listener to right. get. They they weren't they weren't so cryptic with everything and so mystical and philosophical like the first wave of Prague was to where the average person wouldn't have to get a very um, dense reading list to yeah. understand. <laughs> they they just they were they were approachable. They're they're absolutely the gateway prog mm -hmm. band. They're they're usually everyone's first step into that musical world. And um, I think the fact that you know their their epic was their song that broke them big. The word of mouth was so strong with it. We'll get into more detail about that when we get to the mm -hmm. song. Um, you know, these other prog groups, they their epics were more for the diehard fans, not for the everyday mm -hmm. listener. Where Rush was kind of the opposite. The epics actually pulled people in, and then they kind of kept them around with the short yeah songs. that's actually kind of how it was for me when i was first introduced to rush you know it was it i think it was 2112 for me that really like put them on the radar for me musically i mean obviously I, everyone hears tom sawyer all the time on the radio but um, mm -hmm. it was one of my friends who's really big into Neil Peart and he's really big into Rush and he was like oh you gotta listen to this you know 20 minute long song by Rush it's really good and I'm like oh I'm gonna get bored by the end but it didn't feel like 20 minutes you know it felt like the music behind it felt like it was carrying the, the theme of the story and there was a really good mm -hmm. like interplay between those dynamics and like the different emotions of the characters involved and the music itself was just really good in general um so that obviously carried a huge amount of weight for how good the song was and you know all their other epics too the, the one even the ones we don't mention on this list are still were still really good songs that got me into their respective albums um we don't talk anything mm -hmm from um fly by night or caress of steel but uh, i would consider by tour and the snow dog an epic uh, the necromancer oh yeah it's it was actually Fountain on the limnath hemispheres are also are all really good i don't i know you like fountain of lamneth and i don't really particularly care for it but those other three i i love those a lot and 
get ready to see it in a future right. episode. And I think it was just it was something that was like yeah. it was so weird to to like grab onto. You felt yeah, it's definitely the hardest. Well, it's the I mean, hardest just like the epics in general were something that it was it was completely foreign to me. I had not listened to any band do epics before, and I felt like I was part of like the mm-hmm. the cult inside, you know, music appreciator squad. If I could listen to this, and if I could enjoy this, then I was I had good taste in music, and that's. Even as unpure intentions as that was, that's what got me into Rush. And then, of course, as I listened to each of the albums, I would hear, you know, the title songs and the much shorter songs and be like, wow, like they, like they're also good pop writers too, if you're willing to put up with the weird time signatures and stuff. And it's pop for musicians. Yeah, it's, if um, if the original movement of Prague had a problem, it was that it, pardon the expression, the music got kind of caught up its own ass a little bit mm-hmm. too much, and you never really got that feeling with Rush, even when they were pushing the boundaries of length and complexity. There was always a um there was always a purity about them. It was always about making a good song first before making it a big proggy, um, you know, Mm -hmm. ordeal where with some stuff of the first wave of prog, you kind of feel like the, the experimental nature was the first Mm -hmm. priority. It was about, trying to say something um sophisticated and trying to create like avant-garde art in a very different way from slayer and pantera rush don't they don't ever let um you get bored with any musical idea there they have plenty of riffs and solos and different parts and even some soundscape sections as we'll see in this set list that will keep your ear interested in whatever it is and they'll have it for a perfect amount of time they have a great intuition for that and they never have sections that are there just to be weird well (laughs) they don't i mean they do but in comparison to all the other prog groups they do have it there to be weird but it's never like oh, this is weird, like, in a bad way. It's always like, this is weird, but it's kind of mm-hmm. cool that they're able to pull this off. You know? I'm going to be curious to see what your definition of well, weird there's, is. Well, there's two different kinds of weird for me. You know what I mean? I guess give me an example of uh, a section from a song that you're talking about, just mm-hmm. so I can kind of see yeah, if, um, if it's what I'm thinking the, of. The part in, in Natural Science, when they first go back in time, and then they do, you know, it's like, that's kind of weird, but it's not a bad weird. It's like thematic. Yeah, but here's the thing. But it's it also lasts for like exactly. two seconds. When I'm talking about this, I'm talking about like five minutes of strange sonic uh, exploration. Okay. Um, 
a la, a la Pink yeah, Floyd echoes whale sound. exactly what I was thinking. Um, the narrator's voice or, in the Necromancer. Yeah, that's that's probably why um, Caressa's Steel was not as regarded of a record because of the fact that it does actually have more similarity with the old wave mm-hmm. of Prague than it does with what they did with 2112. With 2112, there had never been an epic like that written before, where every single section had a concise, strong musical point that on its own could have been a great rock song, but it also was part of a giant piece. Now, there are places in and, there are places in both books of Cygnus X1 where there are like soundscape sections. Um Yes, but it's also but it's never, never old. Um, and it's always it, it's always good. Yeah, and it fits. And there's always a very distinct reason for why it is the way it is, rather than like you know, let's just throw something crazy in because we're awesome musicians and we're gonna, you know, show how experimental we are. There was never that. Um, that pretentiousness that was the word there i was looking yeah. for earlier it wasn't there's no pretentiousness i feel with rush music it's very much meant to be prog for the masses i, I used to think that it was that that they were being very pretentious with the uh, opening to yyz just that whole thing before they go into the main riff yeah but at the same time also like it's not one of those things to where you have to understand what's happening. Yeah, that is it. true. There's there's a there's a lot of stuff in um, old Prague, the first wave, where it's just like unless you understand like the theory or you're really into avant-garde experimental stuff, you are gonna hate. This. Okay. Yeah, I will say there's not very much of that with Rush. Yeah, it's 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 all to certain extents very a- approachable. Now, of course, you know Rush has also been the butt of many criticism for being, you know, too complex and too weird. But it's just like compared to their contemporaries, they're about as normal as yeah. you can be. And I think because at the time that Rush got big was the time that the first wave of prog was really dying. It had um, – it almost like it had pushed the the weirdness factor so hard that they left themselves nowhere left to mm. go to where each um, release was getting harder and harder to listen to because it was just like how do we outdo ourselves every record? Kind of like how we talked in um... – in our last music history episode about them just understanding polyphony now. And so they just are like, Ooh, let's make it more complex for the sake of being complex. And then forgetting that Mm -hmm. it has to be listenable. Yeah. Uh, It's, it's the, also the main reason why a lot of those bands had to have a big radio friendly record because they were like, crap, no one's listening to us anymore. (laughs) We have to uh, we have to adapt completely. We have to do a, an entire 180 or else we're going to be out of mm. jobs. 
or like tech debt. And I think I think I would be able to relate yeah. more to to what you're saying about the first wave of frog if I ever actually listened to it, but unfortunately I haven't. We will uh, we will do plenty of episodes about it because it sounds like I'm bashing it, but I also mm-hmm. love it. But I understand why everything that happened to it happened. Right. It's it had it had started to crumble under its own weight by the mid seventies, and it needed a band to take Prague in a new direction. That's exactly what Rush did. 2112 literally came at the perfect time when Prague needed a fresh um, uh, direction. And so um, in those senses, that's why um, you know their epics were the way that they were, was they were absolutely kind of, you know, paving a new way and it'll be interesting to compare these epics with the epics that we'll look at from some of these bands in future episodes Mm -hmm. and kind of and you'll be able to kind of see now how um you'll probably have a new appreciation for how well rush wrote some of these epics because um they definitely um, were not following what their contemporaries were doing. So now, obviously, we have our first Rush album without Neil Peart on it. We have John Rutsey. Yes. Um, and of course, John Rutsey was the was the lyricist. Uh, but after Neil joins, we start seeing the epics. R- so Rutsey that- was actually not the lyricist. He wasn't. No, uh, Getty and Alex were writing lyrics. Oh, okay. In the beginning, and they even continued to write very sparingly, uh, periodically in the future. So I guess my question is: Was Neil Peart kind of like the the Phil Anselmo of the group of like, hey, we all want to do prog, let's just do it, or was he kind of yes. like, absolutely, were, were I would. They were they were already wanting to go in a prog direction. It was one of the big reasons why they realized that it was not going to work with Rutsy on top of other issues as well. Mm-hmm. Um, Rutsy wanted to just be a kind of a straightforward rock dude mm-hmm. um, and was very much into what was on the radio where they were already talking about that they were being – Alex and Getty were – already being very inspired by the first wave of Prague. Mm-hmm. And we're like, we want to, we want to take our music in this direction. And, um, Neil definitely agreed with that vision and helped bring them to it. And certainly his, his knack for writing lyrics was a big step in that direction. And, um yeah so i'm trying to remember what the what the question was no i was just saying like was he i guess he was the driving force of or not yes 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 so the catalyst i remember they already i remember now yes 
and he was he was definitely the the fighting spirit of the band. Um, well, we'll talk. I'll talk more in detail about that when we get to um, the songs because there's one song in particular that is very much um, a look into Neil Peart's brain mm-hmm. and into his philosophy and his ethos. Um, but absolutely, he was definitely the one that was just like, come on, guys, we're not going to you know, conform to what they want. We're going to do things our way. And if they don't like it, they can go to hell. Mm. Yeah. That was, that was, I would say that came from Neil first, but definitely the sentiment was shared by Getty and Alex. But I would say that um, it was Neil's fire that burned the brightest in that regard. Okay. It seems like all the good bands are kind of like, either like it, take it or leave it. You know, mm-hmm. it's the it's the reason why they can have such great long careers is because they don't have that period of um, selling out. They they always just do what they want to do. I've I heard Neil Peart say that um, the the words Rush can't do that was not allowed. Mm-hmm. That. You, they could never say, "Well, Rush can't sound like this." Well, Rush can't do this style. Rush can't do that style. That the door was open to take them wherever they wanted to go, and they weren't going to do whatever anyone else told them what to do. They were going to do what they wanted to do, and they did. And it, I, and they have one of the deepest, longest catalogs of any band in history. What is it like? Nineteen. When I was. Albums, um, studio records. I, I won't. I won't say in the number of records they've made because there are plenty of bands that have made more records than them. But few bands have as consistent and deep of a catalog. I guess that's what I should clarify to say. That's true. The number of great albums they made that were still relevant. Yeah. Um, even to say that their last record is one of I think one of their great masterpieces. There and not many bands can say that they left on one of the strongest records of their career after such a long career. I mean there's probably like seven or eight of their albums that I just routinely will listen through all the way through. Mm-hmm. And some of them they wrote back in the seventies. So yeah. <laughs> you know, and it's very rare to have, you know, a 19 year old in 2020 listened to an entire like entire records from 1970 and the fact that rush can be that relevant to somebody like my age who never actually saw them live who was never alive when these records came out who doesn't didn't know the historical significance you know for them to still be appealing i think that's that's a lot for them mm-hmm. you know um so what sort of this is something that i i never understood and i think it has something to do with the keyboard but what kind of moved them away from epics because obviously they started wanting to do that stuff very early in their career and then we get to about 1982 and then all of a sudden no more epics 
Um, it it paralleled more with what they just were wanting to do. It's I kind of compare it to the same reason why um, why Michael Ackerfeld of Opeth moved away from death metal. They just weren't in Prague. wasn't what was inspiring them anymore. They were moving towards um, being inspired by New Wave and by um, bands like The Police and The Talking Heads. And that was just, that's what they were listening to. And that's what was influencing what kind of um, songs they were wanting to write. Did they ever mean to shift that way? Or was it just like, hey, I got this idea yeah. for a song and it just... Because they also felt that when they were writing songs that long that they felt that it was starting to become unfun. Mm. They felt uh, very much that uh, they were, they would start to do epics just because they had to, because they were a prog band. Mm. And again, it was just kind of like this, uh, this, um, this fear of conformity was settling upon them to where I was just like, well, why are we writing a long song? Because we have to? No, we we're going to write long songs if we want to. And if we don't want to, then we're not going to write them. And they didn't. And Signals was that album in 1982, I think. Um, Yeah, Moving Pictures has the last epic. Moving Pictures has the last epic, which we actually talk about, and it's really good. Um, but that album right after Signals is still a really strong album, start to finish. I don't think oh, there's yeah. a single bad song on there. Not in my opinion, certainly. Uh, I would I would say there's one song that I would say is substantially... Even, I wouldn't say it's a weak song, but there's one song that very obviously sits below all of the others. I'm going to guess that it's The Weapon. No, I actually think that that's got an incredible groove. I would say that it's Chemistry. Oh, Okay. I, I would say know, that it's the, fair. That's fair. I would say it's the laziest song of the of the album. I uh, I used to I used to put Weapon in the same category, but in recent years, I've really grown on the Weapon. I I just say that because that seems to be the song of the album that people wouldn't like. I don't talk about Signals with a lot of people because. You know, usually a lot of Rush fans either like the 90s Neil Peart awesome drummingness or the 70s progginess and never want to talk about the keyboard era. You know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, the keyboard era definitely has the most controversy. It, yeah. But even even with them having a keyboard era, it's still far from being a radio-friendly era. No, they're and, still yeah they they were not making those records because they wanted to have tons of um tons of you know popularity and radio success it was just because getty lee personally fell in love with the keyboards and felt that they were it was more fun to write songs on keys than it was on bass it it opened the door for a lot of new sounds that they could do is what I heard him say in an interview was that there are a lot of things that you could do on the keyboard that you just couldn't do with other instruments. And those were, those were things that they wanted to explore. And Mm -hmm. a lot of that stuff actually, okay. 
all of that stuff in the keyboard era of the 80s was very distinctly rush it like it it had a keyboard whereas their earlier stuff did it their earlier stuff was very much just guitar based drums and now everything's keyboard centered but you can still tell that they had that prog influence creeping in because you know they're not always in 4/4 they do weird you know key changes tempo changes sometimes and they'll mess with structures yeah and and so it's still it's still distinctly rush and i think that at every era part of that is their sound which ethan doesn't like but that's okay uh <laughs> part of that's their sound but part of it's just the fact that they have a very distinct way of writing that mm-hmm. in every era you can tell that it's them and no yeah one else and really that's it. That's the secret to having a great long career is you have to change unless you're ACDC. Then you just make the same album over and over again and everyone loves you. But that's definitely the exception most of the time rather than the rule. For most everyone else, you've got to be able to evolve and change or else Mm -hmm. people are going to move on. The key is how do you do that while at the same time still making sure that at every um, phase you're still you. And yeah. I think that that's that's something that Rush excelled at beyond just you know oh you can always tell Getty Lee's voice um, because that in of itself is usually not good enough to. Um, keep you sounding like yourself there has to be some kind of through line and rush definitely had that right and i mean sonically they're gonna sound the same but but yeah you're right uh musically they sound the same compositionally they sound even though it's a very different style between you know something like presto to something like you know farewell to kings it's still those are still two very in your opinion presto is one of the one of the good rush albums in my opinion not so much but they're still distinctly rush styled Mm -hmm. and that that i think is is one of the reasons why they don't do covers so well is because they're so caught up in their own musicality in a good mm-hmm. way it comes it comes across in a good way when they're writing their own music but it comes across in a very bad way when they're covering someone else well i have some things to say about that in our after hours yeah because our after hours we have two covers yes i would say that yeah they well, they don't cover well i I I don't know why you included that album, but we because can have it's that a because it's a release controversy in that. There's uh, there's nothing that's <laughs> off limits when I'm ranking songs. There's no release that's as long as it is a song. It doesn't matter if it's a demo. It doesn't matter if it's live only. It doesn't matter if it's a cover. If they released it, it's meant to be heard by the public. I'm not going to obviously include unreleased stuff that's been bootlegged or what have you, but. You know, you won't you won't include the demos on the deluxe version. Uh, not if the 
the original song is there. If it's a demo of a song that was never released, then yes, I will include it. Mm. But the demo, the demo of a finished song that's on the record doesn't that doesn't count because it's the same song. Okay. Right. I have to judge what the final product is. But if you guys do want to hear that controversy that will happen in the future because we haven't recorded it yet but i'm gonna completely slam the well okay i'm gonna slam half of the six worst songs list then check out <laughs> it'll be a fun because it will be there mm-hmm. yeah bring it on <laughs> ethan do you have any I'm sure uh... you have perfectly good reasons oh yeah and i'll and i'll prove to you why i do have them uh ethan do you have any uh points or questions you would like to make before we um, head into the next segment? Nope, I think this next segment is where all the money's going to be at. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. As you can as you could already hear I was certain saying on certain things, you know, we'll we'll save this for when we get to uh, the songs. So I think that we can go ahead yep. and move on to that. Love to talk about All right, so when we come back, we're going to talk about the six songs that I've chosen for this episode. So stay tuned. Welcome back to the Good Music Podcast. We just finished talking about Rush and their epics and all of the progginess involved in our volume two episode and now it's time to talk about the six songs that we have selected for this episode and they're all epics because this is our epic episode so for those of you who are new first of all welcome second of all you should have listened to volume one so you're a little bit more familiar with rush as a band and more familiar a little bit with what we're going to be talking about in this episode But if you haven't done that, then you're probably a little bit confused as to what this section is all about. So, Lucas, could you explain to them so they're not so lost? Yes. So uh, the songs are our way to be able to concretely talk about the artist and all the things that we were talking about in the first segment. Now, in a normal episode, I pick the songs – to introduce you to the artist, to kind of give you the best first impression. But on volume two, it's different. Depending on kind of what the theme of it is, whether that be live music or in this case, epics, where the songs are going to be fulfilling a different um, goal. In this case, for Rush, I feel like once you have been introduced to them, the epics is the next logical step that you take. So I picked uh, six of their best epics to uh, talk about. And I didn't just pick six any old epics or six of my favorites. Rather, I have picked them in a way to where they flow well from start to finish, that they transition well off of each other, and that by the end, you hopefully have a uh, cathartic experience. So... Uh, The way that you can go listen to these songs is uh, there's a link in the description of the episode and it will take you to a Spotify playlist where you can listen to not just these songs, but all the songs we've talked about in our previous episodes as well. 
So make sure that you go check them out. It would be very sad if you listen to this, what's probably going to be very long episode and not even listen to the songs. Even if you have listened to them before, still go check them out because them being in this order, and it's happened before with Ethan and Grant, um, there's there's a different appreciation that you gather once you have heard them uh, in the order that I've put them in. Mm-hmm. I've they've they've found that songs they previously didn't like very much all of a sudden they're like oh I get this now right exactly it, so with particularly that particularly in our Michael Jackson episode yeah <laughs> so, so with that we can go ahead and uh, move into the first song which uh, when we were talking earlier Grant you were surprised that I picked this as the first song I was very surprised that you picked this as the first song because it has such an intense ending but mm-hmm. the more you think about it it ends the first side of the album that's on which is 2112 so it's yes. the title song Mm-hmm. Uh, the the this, big one. Yes. This was kind of their first complete, they figured out the formula epic. I don't think that they've perfected it yet with this one. I think it takes till hemispheres till they get that. But I think that this is the first full-fledged, it couldn't be better, or if you were to make it better, no one would really kind of care it, it's as mm-hmm. good as it's gonna get you know yes um they have completely figured out how to convey the ideas they want to convey in a 20 minute song it tells a really interesting story with a lot of background and a lot of great music involved and a lot of interesting sounds so the first thing you do notice obviously of this whole set is the iconic weird keyboard synth wave intro pad whistle thing it's become iconic in its own right if you've listened to the set you know what i'm talking about and if you're a rush fan you definitely know what i'm talking about Mm -hmm. but yeah um it's go ahead it definitely gives you kind of like the the feeling of space yes because we are we are traveling to the future in this in right. this song, so it right. kind of helps set that futuristic setting. Yeah, I need to know the story uh, of the song. Yes, yes, that. that's we're gonna spend like probably fifteen minutes just going through the story, both stories, um, the real life story yeah. and the yeah, yes, because there's there's there really are two stories. So um, this song I put as number one on the ranked list. I think. Oh, you you. You you didn't give me the satisfaction of guessing that. Mm-hmm. Oh, really? I well, I always well, I always uh, say it in the episode as in in the song. The um, this was tied for my favorite song, and, and it is not my I, I, it is not my favorite, but I had reason. I was like. This song is technically better than my favorite song. This was tied for my favorite, but it's like I knew this song was better. Like technically, that it was better. I it, I just didn't. 
I barely didn't like it as much. But I but I was also gonna say the other one that I like has to be really high up there too. <laughs> yeah, all of these songs are pretty high up. Because I I I've heard hooks of a lot of these songs before. Mm-hmm. Uh, like a couple of my notes on the songs, I was just like, "Oh, I know this." Mm-hmm. <laughs> but as like, I wouldn't co- consider myself like a Rush. Like I like Rush, but I wouldn't consider myself like a fan. You know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, well, a lot of these songs, I was just like, "Wow, this song is," because uh, Grant Grant mentioned like, "Oh, Y Y Z." Or, you know, Tom Sawyer. There's, like, songs that are, like, the Rush songs. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. mostly just moving pictures. <laughs> and, yeah, all moving pictures, pretty much. And a lot of these, I was just like... I, I would say... At least... I mean, three of these are definitely better than either of those two. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway. I have... I have uh... I have three of those as better than those two. Oh, because right now in my list, uh, Tom Sawyer sits at number five, and three of the songs on this list are above number five. I bet that the other one is Red Barchetta, and it's at number two. No. Oh. Okay. Red Barchetta, which is my personal favorite, <laughs> is actually sitting at number eight. Oh, that's really low. I don't even well, know that song. No, it's oh. not. Not compared to Rush songs. It's a, such a good song. You but get into the '80s and '90s, and you still got all-time great songs. It's still, it's still not a, it's still not a epic. So we could no, it's it's so. it's it's in the mid mid level song life because it's uh, at the at the six minute mark. We couldn't put it in this epic episode. Another another band's epic, but just a middle song for them. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> they've they've got plenty of those um plenty of those six minute songs. I would say that's actually probably more the average. But anyway. Whereas you have So yeah, um twenty one twelve while yeah, again, it's not my favorite rush song, but it's the one that my brain it's just like there's no way another song deserves the top spot more. Yeah. Because for me, and you might also think that if you look at a lot of my rank lists, I tend to be very favorable to the big, long song. But in my opinion, if you're able to successfully pull off an epic, I think that that is worth so much more praise yeah. because it's so much harder to it's do. It's a lot riskier to write a long song. Right. Yes, because you have a lot more opportunity to mess it up. And, um, you know, there's just, you just, you have to applaud the, um, the skill in pulling off a song like that. So, the fact that 2112 is such a achievement. I mean, there's there's not a single moment in it that's weak. It all flows together perfectly. And not only that, but the importance that this song has to the band and to prog music in general. Then you have the amazing story that's being told and the amazing story that um, of 
of the band writing this song. Tell me the tell me the the story of the band writing the song first. So, Twenty One Twelve is their fourth record, and this was their do or die record. Um, Caress of Steel was the album that came before this, and it was a big uh, downturn commercially for the band. They got hammered hard for it. It was it was a little too risky and not completely um, well executed. And they're because they they had a pretty promising start with their first record. Uh, Working Man ended up kind of becoming a, a surprise radio hit, as well as Fly by Night. Um, Fly by Night was kind of like a half normal record, half proggy record. Mm-hmm. It still had some of the the straightforward rock moments of the first album, but you could also tell of, that they're starting to move in a new direction. So was it like the and label that was putting pressure on them on this album? Absolutely, they were about to get they they were about to get dropped. They they hated Caress of Steel, and they told them, "Listen, we're going to give you one more chance. You have to make big on this record, or you're done." Mm-hmm. we're dropping you and you know they told them we want radio songs we want short songs we don't want any of this long sidelong crap that you gave us you know we we were we were on your side because of the fact that you gave us originally radio songs and we want you to keep giving us radio songs and so they absolutely had this immense pressure to give them a safe album and they thought to themselves we have a decision to make we do not want to compromise especially neil neil was so set against doing anything that anyone told him to do he is so much a free spirit and very much an individualist and you know but at the same time, they realized that, you know, they were on thin ice. This was their last chance to live their dream. And they came to the decision, well, if we're going to uh, go out, we're going to go out our way. We're not going to make the album that they want us to make. We're going to stick to our guns. Hopefully people will accept it. But if not, oh, well, we'll go back to our day jobs. Mm-hmm. And, and and they wrote it in their hotel room, you know, as they were touring. Between yeah. shows, they were writing this song. The Fountain of Lamneth, which was the their first attempt at an epic of this size, it almost worked. You could tell that they were really close to figuring out it just it just for reasons here and there just did not completely um, hit the mark. But it is really amazing the step up in quality from Fountain of Lamb Neff to 2112 in just really in less than a year, in about six months' time. Mm-hmm. They went from writing a, a you know, something that you could say, oh, that was a good try, but, you know, not really you know successful to 
writing what I would probably say is the definitive um, prog epic. Yeah. It's the one that certainly all others are measured against. Yeah. It's the defining song of its genre. And still is. And I would say probably the genre's greatest achievement. And so, you know, they were just like, you know, we're gonna we're gonna do it our way. And uh turns out that purely by word of mouth, um, people started to go, Hey, have you heard this album? It's got a sidelong epic and it's awesome. Mm-hmm. If you look at all of the big um the big artists that became fans, they all point that 2112 was the album that they were just like, I've never heard of these guys. Oh my gosh. Are you hearing what they're doing? This is incredible. Mm-hmm. It, it hit that perfect balance of great rock songwriting with this massive um, uh, prog ambition. And I think the fact that they were able to balance the two so perfectly in a way that no other uh, prog band has ever been able to do. Um, mm-hmm. It just it kind of became the big cult hit. And when they originally showed the the album to their um, to their record, they all panicked because <laughs> they were sure that at least they would try to make an accessible record. And the first thing they see is that because Found of Lame Neff closed with a twenty minute epic. This album opens with a twenty minute epic. <laughs> it's not like you get the the accessible songs to win them over and then get to the big experimental piece. You start with it. Mm-hmm. And they were just like, they all were going, oh no, we're, we're screwed. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden it turns into this big cult hit. Right. And they all have to eat their words. And from that point forward, um, Rush com- wins their freedom. They uh, the record label does not at all dictate to them what they do. They pretty much tell them from this point on, you don't even hear the album until it's done, and we make it exactly the way we want to make it. Wow, it's it's really weird if you listen to Twenty One Twelve all the way through, because side B is so forgettable. It's not bad, but it's just it's yeah, completely but it's... different. Yeah, and in a way, you could almost say that that is their compromise. Mm-hmm. That those are kind of maybe the radio songs that they would have been expecting, right? And and had they had those songs on side A and the epic on side B, I don't think that we'd be talking about Rush right now. Probably not, because I would say that there aren't any true great classics on that side. I mean, Passage to Bangkok gets some attention, but it's not as good as everyone makes it out to be. I am a person. I would say probably Twilight Zone. I would say that the best song on that side is something for nothing. Ooh, yeah. I would say that that is actually kind of an underrated gem. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of underrated but, gems on those early albums. Yes, there are. 
but yeah so that was kind of that was a very symbolic record that was the the album that ensured that rush would be around for the long haul and it's the um the song that gave them the confidence to keep going to let them know hey you know we can do this we can be a big proggy band and people will accept us we have found our market we found our fans we found our sound we found our music and we're gonna keep going from mm-hmm. here it's the entire house of rush is built by 2112 and it was really only the first of i would say three uh game-changing records for them like most bands are lucky to have one breakthrough record rush really kind of had three what would those be (laughs) and it's kind of insane the second one being moving pictures because that's what broke them on the big mainstream level Mm mm-hmm um, that was kind of when they became, I guess you you could say that's when they became a stadium act mm-hmm. to where they could hold their own with some of the biggest bands in the world. And then um, I would say Clockwork Angels was kind of like that that last great where, you know, they ha- they were rebounding off of two fairly mediocre records with Vapor Trails and... Um, Snakes oh, and arrows. Don't be mean to snakes and arrows, man. It's a it's good, but to rush standards, it's not as strong That's of an album. It's one of their weakest albums, in my opinion. Strong for anyone else's standards, but for rush standards, it's it's kind of low. But then Clockwork Angels comes in and just immediately asserts them as the masters of the genre. Okay, <laughs> I would say that th- I would say it's a top five record. Yeah. So let's get into what 2112 itself is about. Yes. I think I know. So the whole... But in case I don't say it again, I wasn't listening. <laughs> so first off, the title of the song. It's not mentioned anywhere in the song itself. No. Which, Ethan, do you know what the what the title of the song means? Um, just 2112. I'm assuming yeah. it's a year. It is a year. It's the year that this that this story takes place in. Yes. And um, at this point, it's it's a it's a dystopian feature. It's based off of um, a Ayn Rand novel. Um, I believe it's the Fountainhead. Hmm. And uh, Ayn Rand was a very controversial author in her time because she was kind of seen as a um, as a socialist, which back in that time, socialist was the same thing as communist uh, sympathizer and idealist. Mm-hmm. And uh, she was very much a proponent of um, freedom of expression and freedom of um and freedom of exp- uh individualism yes. pretty much uh, i think objective she individualism w- is the ideology from yeah her line of thinking that uh, that there should be no authoritative rule mm-hmm. 
that all authority is oppressive mm-hmm. and that people should be um, striving to always do whatever they want. Um, basically. Yeah, they should always be striving to seek what's best for themselves. And that will be what's best for society. He's kind of an anarchist. Yeah. Yeah. And um, while Neil Peart was um, very much a fan of her, literary-wise, he was not completely taken in with her ideals. He wasn't as extremist as her. But... You know, he definitely kind of got a lot of flack for it at the but time. But it makes good music. But <laughs> yes, and it's definitely the prime inspiration. In fact, he even puts in the liner notes of the record that this record was dedicated to the genius of Ayn Rand. <laughs> and so he's making no, um, making it no secret who he's drawing mm-hmm. upon. So in the year twenty one twelve. Um, the world has been taken over by um, the Solar Federation. And the ruling class is known as the priests of the temples of Syrinx. Mm-hmm. And they are the leaders of this totalitarian rule where they control everything. Think of the first uh, line of the song, Pasta and the Meek Shall Inherit the Earth, where they say, we've taken care of everything. The words you hear, the songs you sing, the pictures that give pleasure to your eye. Mm-hmm. And so pretty much just kind of saying that, you know, it's it's the the ruling class that's controlling everything. It's controlling the media. It's controlling knowledge. It's controlling art. It says what is acceptable. And most importantly, they are controlling music. Yes. And so they are presenting themselves as this benevolent force. We know what's best for you, so you should blindly follow us because we know more than you ever Mm -hmm. will. On left to your own you will only bring war, destruction, and chaos. And so the entire world is absolutely taken by this idea. No one questions it. And that's what the what the first lyrical section, but there is a section uh, before. And I guess what we'll do is we'll, um, we'll move through the song piece mm-hmm. by piece, and you guys can also give your uh, musical opinions as well and i'll explain as we go through what each part of the story Mm -hmm. means so the first part is the overture which are you guys are both familiar what in in actual music an overture is correct it's like a roadmap musically yeah and i'll i'll also explain for listeners that perhaps are not familiar with the term an overture is a uh, is a classical term where it's most often used in operas where you have all of this music that's going to be played throughout the opera. And before the actors take stage, the orchestra comes out and plays a medley of sorts of all of the themes that you're going to hear later on. Mm-hmm. 
and um a, a lot of old time movies do this like if you watch like a lot of the big epics from like the 50s and 60s they'll actually start with an overture of just there's no actors on screen and you'll just hear like five minutes of the orchestra playing and that's essentially what's happening there and there are yes you know, there and this are a lot is of parts in there that actually don't really show up into the rest of the song oh so you would think i used to think really? the same thing but in really studying for this episode i've actually been able to pinpoint just about every single musical movement that that happens i've been i've been shocked to oh. find how many uh, tie there in are a lot actually, to later parts I'm of going the song. through the whole overture because obviously I've heard mm -hmm. this song 400 and million times 400 and million yeah so I had too and even still there were a lot of stuff that was eluding mm -hmm. me and it wasn't until I really started to listen I was just like oh I see like there, I see now where this is coming from in the overture sometimes mm -hmm. like the uh like the guitar solo is um showing us from um the soliloquy the guitar solo and soliloquy is the same chord mm -hmm. progression but obviously it's a very different feel um you have the um the I get it's it's hard to talk about these without humming parts. I don't want to be hokey to just say you know the part that goes da na 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 na. Yeah, that part. Kind of part of the game. You've got that. That's probably what we'll have to do. But yeah, so that pops up in Temples of Searings. Obviously, we've got the the opening, the da na 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 da da na That's the chorus of Temples of Searings, as well as the guitar solo in Presentation. You've got um, the ba ba da ba 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 da, which is comes to uh, oh, the Oracle that's the Dream. One of the best parts of the songs, which I I never really yeah. I never really liked the the second half of this song as much. I kind of just gave up after presentation and then didn't listen to the rest oh. and kind of turned my brain off and waited for the finale. But it's it. It's oh, if you don't tune out, it's so worth it. Mm -hmm. You've got the uh, towards the end of the overture, you've got the uh, the which is in the grand finale. You've got so pretty much every section of the song is represented somewhere in the overture. Mm -hmm. So, um. So it's, in my opinion, lots of other prog artists have done overtures since. But I don't think any other overture has ever been as good as the one at Man, 2112. This overture, it's, it's so like a song in and of itself. There was a... There's oh, a, yeah. The, the Rush Chronicles, you know, CD, Greatest Hits, whatever deal that I got very early mm -hmm. into when I started liking Rush. Unfortunately, it was kind of scratched. Somebody had like spilled Dr. Pepper on it or something. I got it from a garage sale. So, um, but it, it had um, 
2112 on it, but it didn't have all of 2112. It just had the overture and temples of Syrinx. And it's really, yeah, it's kind of it, like, it's kind of like the single yeah. version. But even that single version is like seven but and a half still minutes long. Really, really good. You know, it's like you don't feel like the overture is alluding to something, and then it's like, what's it alluding to? Like, I don't get it. Like, what's you know, it doesn't feel incomplete on its own, but at the same time, yeah. when you put it in the context of everything else, it's still so much better. I think the brilliance of this overture is that you don't have to, it doesn't feel like you're listening to it and going, wait, these parts, why are they stringing these random sections together? Oh, it doesn't together? feel like that at all. It doesn't feel like it's it's just jumping. It doesn't feel like it's just jumping yeah. back and forth because, oh, uh, we got to we gotta have all of these parts come together. Uh, which is, I think, uh, where other bands' overtures kind of miss the mark, is that it, the overture in of itself doesn't flow very well. It's constantly pinballing between different moods and melodies and feels where with this one it's so natural and again like you can listen to the song so many times and you're still finding little nods here and there like going oh i didn't realize that these two parts were connected oh i didn't realize that this part is actually foreshadowing mm -hmm. this part it's kind of like a it's kind of like a gift that yeah. keeps on giving. You know. And so the more we talk about this song, the more I might want to change what my favorite song of the set is. <laughs> it's gonna be really hard, okay? We'll get to the end of this song anyway. We still have a lot more to talk about. Oh yeah. So that's so that's the uh the overture. And it even ends with a, a great reference to Tchaikovsky's um, Overture 1812, which is probably the most famous symphonic uh, overture. We're... Which that's the overture that ends with the. And he and Alex Lifeson even does that on the guitar. That's where they got the idea to add the cannons at the end too, because there's cannons in Tchaikovsky's overture. Oh, that's actually kind of cool. Yeah, that's like nerd stuff, but it's so. Sounds good. Oh yeah, it's it's super nerd. And so then we get to the first song part which is the temples of syrinx which i i did describe it's it's introducing the antagonists and the world we don't even meet the hero in the first mm -hmm. two sections well is he really a hero and he doesn't even we'll talk about that we'll talk about um that. a tra a tragic yeah, hero that's yep so but we have uh i would say this might be the strongest chorus that Rush ever wrote. Yeah. This this chorus for Temples strongest, of Strongest, yes. Best, that's subjective. But yeah, but as far as just like a great rock chorus, 
It's super simple. It's it's one of the catchiest melodies they've ever come yeah, up it with. Sounds, it sounds like something and, that both ACDC and Iron Maiden would put in one of their songs. Mm-hmm. And his voice on it is so good. And, yeah, what the common cri- complaints that people have about Rush is Getty's voice. But I think on this chorus, it's yeah. never sounded better. It's it perfectly captures that menace and that aggression to where even though he's saying words of reassurance, you definitely don't get that from the tone <laughs> yeah. of the voice. It's very much a a mm-hmm. authoritative um dictatorship like tone. Pretty much just, you know, he's communicating two different ideas with the lyrics and the vocal um, delivery, it's which like I think is a pretty brilliant thing I'll to handle do. It and I'll handle it, you know? It's, it's, I, I, it's interesting uh-huh. that you like that, that his tone of voice has done it because Getty's not known for having a, a, a raspy voice. His voice is very pure. Yeah. This is definitely among the most, yeah, among the most mm-hmm. aggressive he has ever it's sung. Good. But yeah, so and I think this, it absolutely this is works probably here. The simplest of the sections. So uh, musically, um, it, mm-hmm. it's the reason why it's right. of all of the yeah. hard well, obviously it's also, one that they played live the yeah, most. Yeah, it's right after the overture, so it's kind of easy. It's, it's, but it's, that it's an overture. verse, chorus, verse, chorus, the end. And a great little... Oh, yeah, da, the hay, the live hay. I forget about that. Hey! Oh, man, there's, there's nothing like... Because I've... I've seen Rush live twice, and both mm. times they played uh, Overture, Temples of Syrinx. Although the second time that I saw them, they also did Presentation oh. and Grand Finale. Did you see them at the BFK? Which which was really yeah, great. Same. Um, I I yes, got to I did. see them. I just went. I, I just so went you were see, there. I just went. To see I forgot Neil. that you were at that show because you weren't with me. Oh yeah, that, yeah. I, mean, I knew that. Yeah, now why we all having, like his tendonitis was getting to him, and I was like, this is probably their last. Even if he wouldn't have passed away, I would have. I, I thought that that was their last. Yeah, he was talking about that being the best that he ever is and ever yeah. will be. And that's why he wanted to kind of quit while he was ahead. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, he knew that it was going to start to go downhill, which is really sad. Um, but so, yeah, now we go into the third section, uh, Discovery. So this is where we finally meet the the central figure of our story, mm-hmm. an unnamed protagonist. <laughs> we'll just call him the protagonist. And he discovers a guitar hidden in the waterfall of his uh, land. And he um, is finds it, and he's just like, you know, the line, what can this strange device be when I touch it, it gives forth a sound. 
you know, and it's really brilliant how they write this whole section because the way that the guitar plays, it's a very sped up version mm-hmm. of someone trying to learn how to play a guitar. And he's, you know, he's tuning it up, he's messing with stuff, and he's slowly coming up with more mm-hmm. complicated ideas as he goes. And I think that as a concept, that's a really bold thing to do. But I think that it's a really cool idea. And one of the one of the secretly coolest parts of this whole um now, Lucas, you did uh, mention that he me. found it in a waterfall on his land. You have you by chance seen the um, the comic? Is that where you're getting that from? The comic? Yeah. Uh, well, and it, it's also if you read the liner notes in between every um, lyric oh. section neil writes like an expository paragraph and it explains it in that that's actually where they get all of the images for the comic book from is from neil's and, and um, novel narration I, that I comes in between the red star because obviously 2112 is not a satanic symbol it's the it's the priests of the temples of Syrinx symbol no, there's a not line a there that says hold the red star proudly high in hand it's like a it's the it's the symbol of the totalitarian state, and so that's why there's that iconic image of the the guy uh-huh. from the front of hemispheres facing the star because it's like the it's like the yeah it's what the star man the star I always associate star the star man, man. With David that's kind Bowie, of his unofficial so. name the star man but yeah. Yeah, it's. I guess you could say it's not an incredibly um, right, but uh, but it's kind of accurate. Like you have like the one guy against um, the the oppressive masses or whatever, and it and that's kind of what part of their appeal was. Just as yeah. a band was like for all the you know people who felt like they were kind of like alone, even just musically, you know. And I think that's why 2112 appealed to them. And our protagonist here is also like mm-hmm. very sort of alone. And so, yeah, he does this. This section, I will say, is really fun to mm-hmm. um, play because it's so simple and it's so. Yeah, it's. I think that this is. This was my favorite part of the Yeah, exactly. And, and it's like, it's simple enough where you can sing and play it having barely just learned either part you know and so if you if if you have like other rush friends you know over at your house or whatever you pick up the guitar you can all just like sing that part because everybody knows it so Mm -hmm. yeah Ethan, uh, what, uh, it was, it, what grabbed you about this part of the song? It was just a stark contrast. I think the one thing I, I guess I'm pretty sensitive to like whenever it's like whenever the band wants to grab my attention, like they de- like I know whenever they're trying to get me to notice something, you know. Mm-hmm. 
And so coming out of that like big part and then just going to the waterfall uh-huh. thing, I was just like, okay, like they're, and then like the guitar tuning, it's like that's, I'm like, they're doing this. I'm not a, sorry. Did you, did you catch on no. at first that that's what he was no. doing was discovering a guitar and figuring that's... out how to play it? Yeah. Is this news to no. you as I'm des- as I'm describing no. it right now, or did you pick it up I, well, on various because, It's mainly because like I I wasn't following so how does that... anything in the like in the like I was hearing him say like what is this device you know, and I was like oh he's talking about the guitar but like mm-hmm. I but like I I didn't really so I... understand most of what was mm-hmm. happening all before this. So what I'll do is, as we're just, as we're talking about this, I'll kind of ask you if anything recontextualizes for you on just going, oh, I now this. So then, after he starts talking about the guitar, like, what's the tempo speeds up? What is what's that part? So this is him kind of describing discovering the beauty and the joy that the guitar gives him he's kind of like he's now he's getting excited and he's just like oh my gosh because he's he's never seen a guitar before because again the priests completely control all music in this time and so uh, apparently this must mean no guitars because yeah. he's not even saying what is this guitar what is this strange device like he's just like he's never even seen anything like this before and so as he's mastering it, he's realizing this is incredible. Mm-hmm. He thinks that he's found something that's going to change the world. And, and he says, I can't wait to share this new wonder. Let them all make their own music. The priest praise my name on this night. He thinks that he is going to be held as a hero, as a... Um, as someone that has found this great artifact that's going to lead... The world into a new golden age and so he's he's just full of hope and optimism and just pretty much just talking about the mm-hmm. metaphor being what music does for all of us it it fills us with hope it excites us it um picks us up when we're down seeing how it sings like a sad heart then joyously screams out its pain Sounds that build high like a mountain while notes that fall gently like rain. It's just, it's the feeling we all get from music. And I think that's why, again, this is something that was so relatable for other people is that, yes, it's telling a story, but it's also communicating to us of things that we uh, Mm -hmm. deal with in our own lives. Music being this, this escape from the, from the, boredom Mm -hmm. and the grind of our normal lives and so then that leads us into the fourth segment which is presentation which is him going before the priests to present them this new thing Mm -hmm. that he has found and that's when the drums come back in uh the i would say presentation starts right on that and so he is very cautiously approaching them. You know, I know that it is most unusual to come before you so, but I found a great miracle. I thought that you should know. 
And he's pretty much just trying to show them how great this is. But immediately the priests shoot him down. Yes, we know it's nothing new. It's just a waste of time. Another toy that helped destroy the elder race of man. And this completely now, crushes the protagonist. Now the priests do have a He's line. He's just like, what they, are you talking about? about? The elder race of man. But they also talk about, there's a line they say, just think about the average. What use have they for you? Are there are there two sort of like classes of society uh-huh. now, separate from the priests? Um, no, I think what it's doing is they're 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 making the decision for them in the same way that music producers that know nothing about truly great music will uh, say the masses will not be interested in what you have to say. We've brainwashed them already to to believe and enjoy what we say. We have dictated what um, the people will like. And we're just going to tell you, save you the trouble by telling you that... Uh, you know, it's, it's kind of like they're the, not going to um, care about what you found. It's kind of like a, a metaphor for what the band is going through at the time. It's it's one hundred percent the 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 priests of the temples of Syrinx are absolutely meant to be yeah. <laughs> executives at their record label. They are the they are the protagonist, and um, you know. They're equating uh, their kind of rule over what's popular and what isn't to a totalitarian mm-hmm. rule of controlling art and media. And so um, eventually the priests destroy the guitar. And that's something that is not inferred in the lyrics, but you find out in the little liner notes in between that the elder priest takes it and grounds mm-hmm. it to dust beneath his feet. And that's what leads to the uh, the furious guitar solo. It's this it's kind of this this battle of ideals that's going on between um, the protagonist and the priests. And that's why there, you have that sudden change. It's like this, even though obviously it's not an external battle, it's like this inward battle that's happening. You have this metaphorical good versus evil and the, the tension and the angst that one comes, mm. that feels from and being oppressed in such a also, way. Also, there is that sudden change of like, once the guitar is destroyed, it, we, we sort of cut to silence almost. And it feels very... Dark, both physically dark and just emotionally dark. Yeah, the uh, that that leads us to um, Mm -hmm. this is a very uh, good the oracle, the dream musically. Yes, so this so this is where he goes home, and he's realizing now that his life will never be the same. Now that he knows how things could be, he's now starting to wonder 
you know, what, um, what is my life now? And so he goes to sleep and he has a vision of what life used to be like. And it confirms what he was believing. An oracle, we don't know who this oracle is. We don't know, you know, really what the, um, what the lore behind it is. But he sees the elder race of man. And apparently that the, the ideal race has left Earth. And he's now um, mm. hoping for their return. Um, but when he wakes up, and we match into the next section, the soliloquy, the last section with, I, you could say, official lyrics, um, he realizes that things might never be the same again, that the elder race returning could just be mm -hmm. a fairy tale, a dream. And he's realizing now he can never return to the way mm -hmm. things were. He's, he's almost cursed with knowledge now. He's, he's broken free of the brainwashing and he can't go back to living that life. And so he's wrestling now with this, you know, is it even worth living in this world anymore? And he eventually decides, no, it is not. Mm-hmm. And he at very the very end kills suicide, himself. I might add. Yes. And of course we have that big guitar solo that happens there. And uh Ethan, what were what are you thinking of these last couple sections of the presentation? I mean, it all makes the Oracle I, and the I, soliloquy. I always wish coming into this that I would have had the context before so i hope that people in a weird way i hope that people listen to this and then they listen to then they listen to the set you know because i feel like there's so much context unlocked in this mm -hmm. like i didn't know that the guy killed himself he says uh, mm -hmm. yeah my lifeblood yeah. yeah, spills I I just, over i i I'm good at analyzing lyrics. I just don't listen to them whenever I am listening to a song, you know? Like, that's usually not what speaks to me initially. But, mm -hmm. yeah. It's a good. I mean, yeah, it's the number one song in my brain. They're, they're really tight in Oracle, in the Oracle uh -huh. section. And, and we still not... have the. They don't show that necessarily quite as yes, much they're very in the other tight. sections. Obviously, they do in the overture because they play that part. But but for the uh, for the other three, I think we've had previously now sections. They don't really. There's not any of that kind of YYZ tightness that they have in the Oracle, and so that's another thing that they sort of showcase for I think yeah. for a lot of people who are just being introduced to them. Mm hmm yeah and uh we still have yeah. the uh well the, the grand, grand finale, finale that's coming first up would be last <laughs> and <laughs> yeah 
So the grand finale only has one lyric in it. Attention all planets mm-hmm. of the Solar Federation. That's we have Neil assumed Sanders. control. And yes, it is. And for the longest time, fans and even other members of uh, Getty and Alex have maintained this, oh, this is an ambiguous ending. Who who are they saying is assuming control? Because there's kind of uh, several different theories that people have postulated that it's either um, the priests uh, retaining complete control, that perhaps the protagonist's death starts a worldwide rebellion, or that the elder race has come back to um, to reclaim Earth Hopes from tear the, the priests. And yeah, and Neil himself has confirmed that um, that it is the third ending, that it is the Elder Race coming back and taking back control. And so the whole thing is supposed to be a Shakespearean tragedy that had he just held on a little longer, that he would have seen his dream come true. But instead, yeah. he tragically is very Romeo and Juliet, where had they not had they just waited a little bit and, and not it, and it's also, jumped to conclusions, they would have had a happy I, I have three things on that. Two of them are just kind of like trivia. But but it's also sort of continuing that metaphor with them. It's like if they were to sell out for this album, then maybe they would have missed their final chance. You know, had they given up. But they had they had they given up selling out for them committing suicide but would have been they were holding on um, in case yes. they were to break big with this album in case the the elder race were to come back and uh tribute yeah mhm and this whole i this whole idea of this yeah. ending makes sense thematically with what the band themselves did they held out. They did not give up and take the uh, the easy well, and I way think out. If you look yeah. at it, from and they the were definitely the rewarded leaders for it. of the um, Solar Federation. If we're looking at them as the uh, studio executives, I feel like it's almost the band's way of saying, you know, what I mean, like it's like, hey, attention, attention, like all record executives, like we have assumed control. Or bar, and, <laughs> yeah, and they're gonna like, they them the, they themselves are gonna like lead a musical the revolution. Album, like, it's like it's kind of almost a tongue in cheek way of saying like, mm-hmm. like we have assumed control of this album, like, like, you know what I'm saying, and assumed control of that entire uh-huh. genre with that album. Now, trivia wise. Yeah, and assume control of their assume control of their future and their destiny. The elder race is actually them. The guys in the ship assuming control is actually is actually those three. I know. (laughs) I love that. I actually hadn't seen that part. Right. 
I, I've just, I, haven't, I haven't, I haven't read I haven't the full read comic it, before. I've just seen pages, pages here and there. It, um, for the music video, they never recorded a music video. It's just flipping through the pages of the comic book. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, but like music videos weren't a thing back then. They've put like video of them performing "Fly By Night," you know, to Vivo. It's that's right. Uh, but, you could say that, that that's not a music video. That's a that performance video. They did the comic book anyway. Um, it's not meant to happen. But the other thing is, they really do kind of allude to the title the number in the title if you count the words at the ending you know he says attention all planets of the solar federation three times and that's seven words and so that's 21 words and then we have assumed control three times I, 12 words 21 12 i'm just me, saying illuminati confirmed to me i think i think, I think, it's I think that that's too, but it's still though like and not by design <laughs> you never but know. But it is I mean, cool that Neil is out. kind of a mastermind, so he might have meant that. Yeah, who knows? Yeah, who knows? But anyway, so this, so Ooh. now we've spent okay. almost an hour talking about the first song of this set. Yep. And this is the kind of episode that but this the is going to be. Are shorter, and I am so. not going to apologize for it. So. They are, and they're not yes. near as yeah. heady um, lyrically. Mm-hmm. This is definitely, we're getting the big boy out of the way first. But, I mean, yeah, you go through all of this, and you're just like, oh, yeah, duh. Uh, this is Rush's masterpiece. I think that, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say one quick small thing. Um, I... Uh, was reading a list of someone ranking every Rush song from worst to best. What? <laughs> and they placed 2112 at number 70. And I, like, okay, visibly sh- shook. Not I was the- so angry. Because I maybe I could understand being... Yeah, it has to be in the top 10. If it's That's not like, the top only an idiot would two. not put okay. it in the top ten. But like, 70. but I could, I could. <laughs> Number seventy, oh. I like don't even understand. And like, I read the little description. It said this kooky sci-fi song definitely put Rush on the map and got them where they are today. But you definitely <laughs> can feel that there's some okay. parts that are pretty okay. corny. If you're not used to it, you know, the going Good Lord. sections can kind of get old. And that's why I think that, like, Hemispheres, they perfected it. They didn't go to silence very often, you know. But at the same time, it fit thematically because there's a transition of time or location or of emotion or something. And so it's it's... It's like you're turning to a new chapter, you know? So, it's... Mm-hmm. 
Right. And and, and that's more accurate uh, to classical 70, form. I can't even, man. You know, the more we talk about this song, I think I have to say this is my favorite song of the yeah. set. It's per- it was it was originally going to be between the 3rd and 6th. But I've changed my mind. This is definitely it. Finally, the second well, song. Well, let's go ahead and move on to the next Not song. Finally. Grant's <laughs> least favorite in. song. And we are going to the next favorite? song, which is... Oh, that's true. I do always hate on the second song. This is not my least favorite. <laughs> because you always hate the second um, song. Of all of them? Ooh, it's going to be hard. Because I like all of them a whole lot. But it's not this one. This one is one of my personal favorites. Um, Xanadu. I have... Oh yeah, Xanadu. I have performed which is number this song in front four of on the ranked four. playlist. You damned almost all of it, and I like tried to follow almost along all of it because there uh, there's a lot of different sections. Most of these following <laughs> songs are going to be kind of like the overture in complexity, especially this one. But it it sort of repeats itself. They kind of do the death formula with Xanadu. Yeah, which I I would like to think that they were among the first to uh, mm-hmm. um, to use that structure. Yep. Which I love that structure that you kind of you you set you set everything up, you move everything forward, and then you have a moment where everything resets. But then every once you start going through it again, mm-hmm. um, everything is slightly different. So um, this was the first Rush yep. album. So this is off of Farewell to Kings, which was the follow-up to 2112. So this was the first album where they had true creative freedom to make the album that they wanted to make. And they... definitely pull out all the stops on this album and Mm -hmm. xanadu is xanadu is kind of like it's the 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 second song song on the the big statement so of course we Um, we open up with the title song which is a great song i think it's pretty underrated mm -hmm. and then we have that really atmospheric intro that kind of gives us the sort of feeling that we're going to have throughout the song very, very mystical, mysterious. Very mystical, very mysterious. Even. Yeah. That, yeah, that that guitar line yeah. is so good. That and when the whole band comes in, it sounds so triumphant. Mm-hmm. We've got about like five, five. minutes before Maybe. any vocals come know. in at all. Whatever it went, whatever it goes. Exactly. I haven't done the exact math, but it's a pretty so, long. It's uh, a very long intro. That like that caught me way off guard. Oh, it does. Yeah, I know what you're talking about because it was so fast. I thought we were gonna be on that. Oh yeah, that's vibe such so a long. And, and he goes to the uh, he goes in. to the Glockenspiel. <laughs> mm-hmm. 
Yeah, but then but but then you get some more of that that main line whenever it comes in after the first chorus. Mm-hmm. You know, it goes back to that that main line. It's very very uh satisfying. So this song lyrically is based on a poem from the 1800s and uh Xanadu was a real place. And Kublai Khan was a real person, although um, the location has been mystified over the years, kind of put into legend. It is not a mm-hmm. actual supernatural place of immortality. Um, so it's this this song is pulling much more from the poem that takes a lot of artistic license than history, mm-hmm. although the place did historically exist and pretty much just kind of it's it's about kind of a a cautionary tale of careful what you wish for because you have this character that is seeking immortality almost in a way a bit of a um a spiritual successor to the fountain of lamb neff because that is the the main quest of the character in that uh, song but now here he finds it he finds the place that he's looking for and at first it is this joyous moment he's marveling at the at the location at the architecture the food I will dine on honeydew and drink the milk of paradise he marvels at the frozen caves of ice and um, you know, he's, he's found what everyone has lusted for, for all of time, the mortality. And I think it's interesting that he, they leave us on a bit of a cliffhanger um, of him finding immortality. Then they go back to the intro line. And as soon as they pick up back with the lyrics, immediately things are different. A thousand years have come and gone, but time has passed me by, and and now he is seeking to escape mm. the immortality that he had searched for. He now sees immortality as a curse because it's not just that he is living forever, but he cannot leave Xanadu, and it's not even a thing to where like, oh, I don't want to leave Xanadu because if I leave, then I'll die. He is locked in there. A, a a sheet of ice has covered him and time mm. is not passing in the outside world the stars have stopped in the sky it's not even that he's immortal it's that he's frozen in time the world <laughs> is not moving without him if, if he were to ever leave Xanadu he would still mm. be in the exact same time period as when he entered I think that that's an interesting concept. Um, so that's kind of the because there's very little lyrics, very unlike how we just came with twenty one twelve, which I think kind of gives us a good little change of pace yeah. here. It's still an epic, but it's not this very wordy, large story. And so it's by the end, all of the lyrics have been inversed. Where as soon as he's he's um searching the caves of ice now he's trying to find the caves of ice so he can get out he's tired of the honeydew he's eaten it every day 
Mm-hmm. And he's he's sick of it. Now this mm-hmm. the pleasure dome is no That's longer just, a pleasure I never dome. Knew it's a I never knew that about this song. The things you learn on this podcast. Oh man. And I already liked this song. You didn't oh, have to yeah. sell me on it. <laughs> <laughs> but but yeah, and it's also just it's interesting musically, kind of like Ethan talked about this too, is that like there are some weird twists and turns in here. You know, there's some marimba stuff in there, I think that's what it is. And that's that kind of shows where Neil was sort of going at the time. And certainly as we get into the mid to late 80s is the very weird mm-hmm. drum sounds that certainly are great, but on their own are like, huh, I didn't expect that to be in a prog rock song, you know, like a marimba. But it... yeah. This is the album where he definitely yeah. hardcore upgraded oh, the drum kit. True, you've got you the chimes, you've got the big bells. Um, he's got the he's got the glockenspiel. Like this is definitely like I'm yeah. sure he got a lot more money than he had before after the success of 2112. So he's just like I'm gonna soup mm-hmm. up the crap mm-hmm. out of my uh, out of my drum kit. This is kind of the, the right. beginning of the massive right. kit that he became so famous for. And also, this was the... I mean, yeah, we did have the um, the the synth in the beginning of 2112, but this is the first album that also very prominently features synths. Synth is a very integral part of this whole song, where in 2112, it was just used in the opener. That's and then you true. never heard you it again. Kind of like- if or at least not that I heard. Who knows? There, there could, there could be stuff. Uh, yeah, and they're, they're, you know, it's the whole, uh, mm-hmm. you know, underpinning. There of are that no entire full intro. like synth parts yet. You know, it definitely takes a few albums before we get there. But, but. But they're getting there, especially with the synth lead. But lines. you can tell they're heading in that they're, direction. It's no longer synth is in effect. Synth is now a a full instrument, almost like another voice still, but it, it's it's taking a more musical form for them, and I think that's a that at this point it's a very welcome change mm-hmm. to the prog audience. Yes. So, um, yeah, uh, uh, Ethan, do you have any other thoughts about Xanadu? Yeah, as far as we know, there's no escape. It's almost like there's no happy ending here. It's just like, well, you want immortality, you got it. Have fun. Go ahead. And it's, it's, I think, I think that, I think it is interesting that he has two songs about the quest for immortality fairly close together in time. And I think that you have a pre-success and a post-success view of immortality. It's something that you're craving. Um, I, you could almost say that 
immortality may be a substitute for fame and success. You crave it and you want it more than anything. And it's the story we've told time and time again on this podcast of people that will literally do anything to have fame and fortune in the music world. But as soon as they get it, they instantly hate it. And they and they and they seek to get rid of it. And so it and we know uh very well that Neil Pert struggles with fame the more that he gets it. It's what the I mean, in very obvious terms, it's what Limelight is all about. About him trying to to deal with the fact that complete strangers are coming up to him and talking about him as if he were this god of drums and it's it's sort of weird too how both those songs uh xanadu and limelight are very popular for them but they're both talking about i guess we kind of made the connection with xanadu but talking about fame and how you know be careful what you wish for sort of thing and at the same time that those songs are sort of for lack of a better term complaining about being famous they brought the band more fame. And so That's it's true. sort of like, a, it's not exactly a catch-22, but it's kind of unfortunate that that's the, that's the way it is. But it's also... Weird. It's called irony. Okay. It's irony. It's irony, yeah. <laughs> but I don't, I can't remember how Fountain of Lamneth ends. Does it... He, he, he dies right before he can get what he was good at. Oh, for. now that's even more complex, too. That adds into the whole thing, too. He, he, he arrives at the Fountain of Youth and then dies. That is just... Okay, because that's where they were in their career. Uh-huh. That's like they were about to do exactly what they wanted to do, but the record company was like, no even though they didn't understand that yet, that that record was going to be like that. But that's really interesting, too. Because mm -hmm. in Xanadu, he gets it, and he doesn't want it anymore. That, so I think I, think I might uh, be on to something. I think you are on to something. <laughs> I think... Well, it could, this this could be completely speculative. Obviously, you know now we will probably never truly know. A lot of but, a lot of Neil's stuff has to do with real life, though. If you really yeah. break it down, a lot of his certainly as we get later in the career, a lot of the stuff that seems to be out of touch with reality really is very relevant to what's ever happening with him. Yeah. All right, but well, then I think we'll go ahead and we don't uh, have to move on to the next song. We don't have to. There's more to talk about with Xanadu. Oh, but we are having a, we are having a, a episode run quite long, so I think <laughs> let's we go ahead. Probably keep moving forward. Let's go ahead. So next, we get into I would say probably the most underrated uh, epic that they've ever made. Yes which is the camera eye and the last epic that they ever made. Mm -hmm. What is the song about? So this song, um, let me, let me think here. Well, I mean, I guess if you count out, uh, 
Well, no, there are other, there are more than one song here that, um, that doesn't follow a story, but this is the first song in the set. That's not story driven. Mm -hmm. This is more experience driven. Yeah. So this, this is, this is a snapshot of two cities, um, New York and London. And he makes that pretty clear in the lyrics because there's really two halves to this song. You've got the um, you've got the New York half, and you've got the London half. Mm-hmm. And I want to say that this is pretty much based on um, just him at this point starting to travel, and um, kind of him like almost taking a outsider's look at these places that he is normally unfamiliar with mm-hmm. and kind of kind of almost examining them and and critiquing them in a way mm-hmm. he um because of the fact that he does not belong to either of these two cities he's he's noticing the 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 hustle and the bustle of both of these met- metropolitan areas really you could say um that you've got the the business capital of North America and the business capital of Europe mm-hmm. um two halves of one whole in a way and he's seeing all these people just rushing around their daily lives and they don't realize the specialness and the uniqueness of this incredible city that they're living in. And I think he's critiquing on those. just like, if these, these people are so consumed in what they're doing that they're not, you know, kind of recognizing the beauty that's around them. This, this, you know, man-made Marvel that they're standing in. And so he himself is sort of the, by taking in everything that yeah. he sees and all the experiences that other people are sort of completely oblivious to. They seem mm-hmm. oblivious. They seem really oblivious. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and, and this this and he's very liberal. You know, I don't think that there's a lot of hidden meaning other than the fact that like, Yeah, I think there's not a hidden really, because it does say that those people are very oblivious to what's around them. Mm-hmm. The thing with Neil Peart, and something I actually do admire about his songwriting, is that he doesn't go out of his way to make things overly cryptic. Mm-hmm. He he tends to shoot very straight, but what he says often is very deep and very meaningful. Yeah. He doesn't talk surface level, but he's not going to, like, really make you work. That's why, like, when I say, like, Xanadu might be a um, a metaphor for fame, it's kind of like, in a way, I think that also might not be the case because he typically tends to not deal with those intense levels of like secrecy. Same yeah, time, like he's not been, like a bleed over subconsciously. 
it's it's something that could be subconscious, absolutely. But I don't think he's, and that's why I think like something like the twenty one twelve with the, it tends to be more the music hides a lot of the hidden meaning and a lot of the, um, a lot of the really clever stuff where he's where he's you know getting deep into all of these all of this hidden meaning and so this is a song that you know in a normal artist's hands i think would have put in a a half-baked lyrical idea but even neil pert who's not going out of his way to say anything super crazy or complex, I think that he still comes out with some pretty meaningful, uh, impactful things to say. He still has something to say. He still has his puritanism. Yes. But to me, the standout of this song is all oh. music. I think this is, this is some of them some of my favorite music and definitely this is the most overlooked um track on moving pictures Ooh, overlooked yes because that means that it also has to be really really good and vital signs i don't listen to a lot but i don't like it near as much as camera eye yeah yeah now this is the lowest ranked song on this set it's actually at number 24 that's fair but it's 24 for rush is still insanely good better than most other people's 24 this used to be one of the uh, rush songs that i would put on my you know repeat playlist my very short repeat playlist of all my favorite songs of my favorite artists this was one of those songs because it it's very much like Xanadu in the fact that there's different musical themes that kind of run together. Xanadu also did the thing where they would switch between major modes that we didn't even talk about, which completely changes the feeling. Oh. Uh, but they do that in Camera Eye, too. Um, and so, or I should say, the Camera Eye. Uh, and I mm-hmm. didn't get a... You can call it camera. Yeah. I won't yeah, it, get you in trouble. It, I didn't gain a full respect for it because the first time I heard it was um, a live version, and so I was kind of like, "Ah, eh, this is like an okay song." You know, I didn't I didn't understand the significance of it until I listened to um, Moving Pictures the album, and then I'm like, "Wait a minute, I've heard this riff before," and of course, it was the main riff. You know, and I was expecting mm-hmm. it to come in because you know the rest of the song sort of leaded, leaded. The rest of the song leaded up to it. The rest of the song led up to it, led up very to well. Um, which is sort of weird in the fact that they did that. Um, Ghost does the same thing with Miasma into Dance Macabre, even though nothing's the same. It still feels like it's leading into that, um, and and uh-huh. that's sort of what this song did. And so when they break out into that main riff. It's like, wow, I feel very, I feel like I'm in a familiar place musically. There's a, there's a standout moment for me. I remember the, I remember very vividly the very first time I heard this song. Mm -hmm. Because this moment like hit me like a train. And it's when that reset happens. Mm -hmm. 
So he does that very first, I feel the sense of possibility. And then it, he does the focus is sharp in the city. And then it just cuts hard into that slow down tempo. And it goes back into that intro groove. Oh, I remember that blew my (laughs) mind the first time I heard it. I was like, what? What just happened? And it's like, it, it's, it shouldn't make sense, but it does. It's one of those. It's that 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 change is one of my favorite rush moments of all time. Right. Because I can still remember how that moment made me feel. That's why it was in the in running for my eight, favorite. In eight... Yeah, it's a uh... This this is a song not to uh, underestimate for no. sure, but yeah, this is a that's that's kind of the moment that just like sealed us. Was like, okay, I gotta delve deeper into this mm-hmm. song, and then yeah, once once it does that, it just it continues to make its way back across the same track, but then of course there's some differences. You've got you know the there's there's subtleties that makes it a little more urgent and then of course you've got the big guitar solo coming in towards the mm-hmm. end where um Alex kind of gets a gets a little spotlight shredding mhm which his solos on that album are notably clean for him yes they are you know He's usually one of those crazy guitar players. I mean, if you listen to to Working Man, he's like a crazy soloist there. Even up into you know, um, permanent we'll waves. we'll see, we'll see it in the next song. Uh, yes, well, kind of. We'll definitely see in the album of the song after that. Um, I can't remember particularly of that song, but anyway, this this solo is very clean and most of the um solos off the album are and i think that that's one of the big mm-hmm. reasons why that that album in particular was so big is because they the sonic nature of music has finally caught up with their um musicality and that's probably why the yeah. album was so big I, that's just speculation i have no idea but that's just my guess so, Lucas, you said that this song was, like, very obviously divided up between, like, the New York part and the London part. Mm-hmm. Can you, more, can you go more into that? So, um, I mean, really, it's just in the sense of just, like, because he, he states specifically the city names in both sections. But he's, it's one of those things where he's pretty much drawing a comparison between them um but there is kind of a difference he's he talks a little bit more about the man-made beauty of manhattan but he talks a little bit more about the mystical beauty of london he's um he's talking about the rich history the um the atmosphere the Yes, it's it's a bit more of a um a bit more of a quiet beauty rather than the the loud bright lights of New York. I think that they missed an opportunity to have a big musical change for the 
different cities. No. Yeah, but at the same time, I think that you can't get to where the song takes you without doing what the what they did. I think that that going back to that slow intro groove is change enough. It's sort of like a, it's a musically a reset, but it but going through it a second time still puts your ears in a different place. Because you now kind of I, I feel was, like you know mm-hmm. what to expect, but then they also kind of disappointed. they do things slightly differently. Like they have kind of sounds in the background, you know, when with people with the people on the street talking. It's like, huh, that wasn't in the first section, and so it kind of gets your ears like prepped for something new. And even though, yeah, it's the same riffs, kind of like, yeah, it's another big city you're still experiencing it as if it's new. And you kind of have that that optimism that the song kind of wants you to get. I just felt like I was in that... I, I felt like I was in those two chord changes for a long time. <laughs> so, so would, the, would you say this yeah. is your least favorite song? No. Ooh. Oh. Oh. I bet I know what it is. You had told me before that there was a very obvious least favorite song. Yes, I do have an obvious least favorite. I bet I know exactly which one it is. Oh, now I'm now I'm curious <laughs> to know what it's going to be. I bet I know. Um. Okay. So we uh we have a we have the big climactic ending at the end of the song. And I think that that gives us a nice mood transition into our next song, yes. the instrumental of the set, <laughs> La Villa Stranjato. Let's go. Every Rush fan pronounces this song's title differently. You know, some people say I've... La Via Strangiata, some people say La Via Strangiato, some people say. La Via Strangiato. Some people say La Villa Strangiato. You know, it's like I don't even know. Have they ever pronounced it the same way? The three of us? Yeah, the the way I'm pronouncing it is the way that they pronounce. Okay, it. how do they pronounce it? La Villa Strangiato. La Villa Strangiato. Wow. Okay. The double L definitely throws everyone for a loop. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so do the, you know. 14 sections of this song. How many are there? Um, there's nine, okay. I believe. Maybe ten. Only nine. But hey, you know, there there and some of them are only seconds long. And so it, it, Yeah, they're very short. Very complex, more so than the level of overture, but this song is is very different than a lot of the songs of this set and a lot of the songs that we review on this podcast because it's an instrumental. Yeah, we don't do instrumentals quite often on here. Um, but Rush has written their fair share of instrumentals. Obviously, YYZ is the is like the big popular one. Mm-hmm. But I think that La Villa is the great one. Yeah. And it is number three on the rank list. This was my favorite song in the set. Ooh. I this is what I probably would have guessed for you. Mm-hmm. 
I just, well, I will say that I think my, there was a moment where, and we'll, we'll get to it, but there was a moment where I was like, oh my gosh. And I, there was a moment where I was like, this is the best Rush song of all time. <laughs> and then the, there was a moment immediately after that where I was like, oh, dang it. It's not. Oh, <laughs> what? Okay, we'll have to get there. But it does, and when we get there, I want to know what it is because I'm I'm sure that I, I've probably shared that sentiment at one point. Now, obviously, I've known hmm. this song has existed for years and years, so I've become accustomed to all the different sections and all the different movements, I guess. Uh, but we. This start... was the. Uh... Go ahead. I was going to say this is this was actually the first big rush first rush epic song that I ever heard. Really? As far as just like, you know, super big cuz I actually heard the live version off of Exit Stage Left because um the song that would come before it on that album was Tom Sawyer and I listened to that song all the time when I got that album. But then sometimes I would just accidentally leave it on and La Villa would come on and I would just I would never get all the way through it, but I would like hear more and more. I was just like, Oh, this is, this is interesting. And I just, I had never listened to long songs. I was still listening to pretty standard songs. And so it was so intimidating when I would look at the runtime, I would see it was almost 10 minutes long. (laughs) And I'd be like, Oh gosh, I, I, I don't know about this. And it was like, it's a weird title. Is this going to be a really weird song? But then, like, I would listen to a little more each time, and a little more, I'd be like, "Oh, that was really cool. Maybe I'll listen to a little more." Mm-hmm. Is this and supposed then... to be like a successor to uh, YYZ? It came before. No this this came before because it has like very similar drum patterns. Yeah, uh, this is actually uh, this came out in '78 and. YYZ came out in 81. So this is on the album Hemispheres, which is the album after Farewell to Kings. So this is the final, I guess you could call it in the trilogy of the big proggy albums. Mm-hmm. Um, because after this album, and specifically after recording YYZ, they decided never again are we going to work this hard on writing such a ridiculous complex song. <laughs> Um, if you were to have a if you were to have a complaint about La Villa, it's that it almost broke the band. Ooh, because they tried, they tried so so hard to record this in one continuous take, and two weeks later, they still weren't getting that that take that they wanted. So they finally gave up and did it in three different. Do you mean broke up the band or broke the band like their morale? Their morale. And who knows? It might have broken up the band as well, just because they were so frustrated recording the song because they they admitted that they wrote a song that was too difficult for them to play Mm. at the time. Now, of course, as the years went on and the more they played, the easier playing this song got but at at that time they were just like our ambition definitely um went past what we were able to do Mm -hmm. and so um the we have a rare songwriting 
uh, credit to Mr. Alex Lifeson here because this song um, pretty much almost exclusively comes from him, which he is normally not a lyric writer. Neil writes about probably like 98% of the lyrics with Getty coming in, you know, once every couple albums, as well as writing pretty much all of the first album. Mm-hmm. Um, and Alex really doesn't write any lyrics. He's just, he's in the music department. Mm-hmm. But this was definitely all from Alex's brain. Mm-hmm. It was actually, the whole mm. structure of this song was was um, structured around a recurring dream that he kept having. Oh, really? Uh-huh. Okay. And the that's where they got the idea for the title, was that um, apparently he had a uh, reputation for constantly coming up to the band and telling them about all of his strange dreams. And so they called um, Alex's mind uh, La Villa Strangiato or The Strange Land. Hmm. Because he always, because he didn't have normal dreams either. He had these weird, crazy dreams. And so he would come up to them and they'd be like, okay, here comes Alex again with his Villa Strangiato, <laughs> his strange mind. Would, and so, so eventually... This was a recurring dream, but it's not a bunch of separate dreams. No, it's it's a, it's a, it's actually a nightmare. Oh. And so each... I, I don't want to go too much into what every section can mean because first off it'll take a really long time and we've spent a long time as it is but also again it's instrumental it's kind of hard to um pinpoint you know musical ideas with um metaphorical concepts but pretty much kind of the whole first section where it's very you know dreamy is the whole falling asleep part it's actually not part of the dream yet it's that it's that piece of in between waking and sleeping like that whole that little acoustic guitar solo right at the beginning which i think is a brilliant way to start the song yeah is is him saying good night and then um and then going into the dream and then him entering the dream is when that ba ma ma da 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 ma ba ma the main riff of the song, and then um, the guitar solo is him wandering through the dreamscape, and then the nightmare begins when it gets to the ba ba da ba ba da ba 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 da ba da ba ba because the in the the actual section is called Ah Monsters. Oh yeah, it is. And so this song is very much meant to be tongue-in-cheek. It's meant to be kind of, you know, not to be taken incredibly seriously, even though this is, I would say that this is the most complex and most um, intricate song of their career. There's so much that happens throughout this whole song. It's ridiculous. It goes through so many changes uh, but it's all brilliant. So, Ethan, take us now to your uh, your dividing moment in the song. 
So I, at, at, at first, like, I heard the guitar, and I was like, that's really cool. I like, all the synth. Like, just that, that vibe. Yeah. I pretty much, whenever we got into, like, kind of that half... When it goes that seven, that seven eight part. Like, when it, it goes like, down for the guitar solo, yeah, it gets to that groove. Like right whenever it went down, and it, it kind of really started in the guitar. Like whenever the guitar started kind of coming, I was like, "This is amazing!" Like that's that's whenever I was like, "This is the best Rush song of all time." And then like once he kind of like, I don't know guitar terminology, but he like, I mean he like, once he starts stops like noodling around, he's like, "Okay, now it's time for the guitar solo," you know. Mm-hmm. I was like, "Dang!" Yeah. yeah, he's he's doing the he's doing the 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 volume modulation and like he was kind of he's kind of messing around and he's like, "Okay, it's time for guitar solo time now." And then he like cranked it up and I was just like, "Yeah!" Oh, it's such a sweet tone that he has on Hemispheres for yeah. his lead. That that section right there, Ethan. I'm glad you mentioned that section because that is one of my favorite rush jam sections just of all their discography probably my favorite of their discography it's it it's two minutes but it feels like 15 seconds you know because it's so good and they just they meld so well and you have this feeling of space but their mix is very dry yeah but they have they have that like all that synth stuff going that, on that's, under it. That's true too, and that's that's what that's what made it feel so good. They had that big bass synth, mm-hmm. and then whenever they start plucking the arpeggiating, and I was like, "This is incredible!" And I was like, "We're about to like go somewhere." And then whenever he opened up the arpeggiation, like with the distortion. Like this whole that whole part is just incredible, you know. It is because it's like, and then I'm gonna guess that you didn't. And, like and then it freaking went into like the it the whatever the next part is. Dang it! Really. Oh, okay. Because I think that that section, it pays off when you get to the end. Yeah, it's kind of weird when you first like, hear it. Nothing in nothing in the rest of the song even came close to the emotional connection that I had whenever he opened up the arpeggiation. I would say not of the same kind of emotion. Yes, but when like it felt. And I guess, like, in the context of, like, it being, like, a nightmare and it being, like, monsters and stuff, and it's, like, it's supposed to kind of change, I guess. Mm-hmm. It makes sense, but, like, like, whatever that happened, I was, like, we, like, the whole vibe that we had created, like, it, like, I, I wish that it would have passed the torch to something that was still similar. And, and I wish that it wouldn't have taken such a left turn because then it felt kind of like goofy. It's a left turn kind of song, you know. And I I get it from a songwriting mm-hmm. perspective. It's just like I was like, this is like 
whenever that happened, I was like, this is the greatest song of all time. And then, like, it went into the next section. I was like, oh, like, it's, like, we're completely not building on what just happened. Well, they just built the thing for two and a half minutes. Whatever. It's okay. It's your opinion. It's a valid opinion. Well, that's your opinion. It's a valid opinion. I will let you have it. But we do do have probably the sickest Getty Lee bass moment of all time that comes right after that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That bass little solo that he plays there, I think, (laughs) is the nastiest thing he has ever done. Yeah. Okay. Besides the main riff to Malignant Narcissism. I do like that his third little solo in uh, YYZ when they uh, yeah. when him and Neil but are still... training and then they add that extra measure or whatever. Uh-huh. But uh, yeah, no, it is a really good bass solo. And then they all come in together with the hits. It goes into that, yeah, that next... Um... That whole complex section is just really um, kicks it into overdrive, and then uh, there's another guitar solo because I mean the guitarist wrote the song, so there's going to be another guitar solo. But and and I think Monsters pays off when you get to uh, I think it's after ish the guitar solo there's i think there's one section after guitar i would say i would say when it comes Um, in with the halftime the that's when it pays off yeah when it goes halftime that's when it's just like oh yeah thank you for that riff that's that's from that's straight from that meme you know where it's like it's got it's got donald trump doing the lemon face you know and it's like when they come back with the same riff, but it's slower. Uh-huh. You know, that's exactly what that is. Every time I see that meme, I think of, I think of this section because they do it so well. It's not the same feel at all. It's not the same tempo at all, but it has the same notes. And so it's like, oh, the riff has found its final evolution. It's and also crazy. That, com- that contrasts. Yeah, and and that that contrast I think is what what does it because if they had just done that riff with their sound, it wouldn't sound super heavy. It wouldn't uh-huh. sound like, you know. But because they had that monster section before and they provided that contrast, that's how Rush can get away with being really heavy with sections like that. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah, it makes sense to me. Okay, <laughs> it's it's crazy actually now to think that that was their very first ever instrumental. That is weird. I don't think we ever think about that, but if you think of all the rest of their albums, there's no um, instrumentals up to that point. If you don't count the overture of twenty one twelve, which I kind of would, kind of wouldn't. It's, yeah, the, it's the first full-fledged the entire song is no vocals, period. Yeah. And it's one of the very few, too. I mean, uh, because you had mentioned that 
you know, they are known for having instrumentals, but if you really look through their discography, they don't have that many. I think there's only like six or seven. Yeah, I mean, there's there's not that, but they're, I guess I should say that their instrumentals have um, become very iconic. Yes, that is very true. They're very good at writing instrumentals, which is kind of weird. That's kind of a bad rap for Getty as a vocalist. It's like their songs are on average better. Well, it just means, it no means that they're, they're really good at, <laughs> at letting their instruments sing that's true that's very true like um where's my thing is that what it is yeah uh -huh. that one's and, very good at doing that. and and uh leave that thing alone is also equally as good that's true too i feel like those songs are kind of meant to be a play on each other yeah they absolutely are okay i'm, I'm uh, glad so yeah, and then we have the triumphant return to the main melody. Mm -hmm. We have one more, and I love the the title of that last section. Don't ever turn your back on a monster, because mm -hmm. it comes in for one last scare, and then immediately it's out. Yep, <laughs> and it, and that ends the album. Uh huh. It's a right it's a, only a four it's a four song album, if you can believe that. Which it's of wow. four really strong songs, mm -hmm. you know, with hemispheres. The trees is a personal favorite of mine. Circumstances, Circumstances super underrated is so underrated, and of course you have La Villa Strangiato. La Villa Strangiato. I now know how to pronounce it, or at least I know how to pronounce La Villa, not La Villa. Mm -hmm. I'll be I'll be correcting every Rush fan that I meet. You're Go welcome. for it. <laughs> Tell them I sent you. I yeah okay, but anyway, but, we so still we have, have a few more songs. Yeah, so we have a very hard ending, which I think kind of gives us an interesting way to get into the next song, with just the nature sounds of natural science. Yes, natural science. So this Another... was the album I think Ethan you mentioned that you did not like the sound so much. Yeah, I would probably say that this is my least favorite song on the set. That's what I think. I will also say though that I don't think that this song is a bad song. Oh though. no. I don't I don't dislike the song. I actually I tend to actually like the live versions of this song better because the live setting lends itself to more bass response and some of the riffs towards the middle can get pretty heavy you know with that with that intense live bass tone that getty has that uh -huh. you can't quite get across in a studio album but still so, uh, what i was what i was saying before we started um i guess recording was it was on this song, and even whenever I look back at my notes, I I find myself gravitating towards all of the parts with like all like the weird effects and like when the band isn't all in, mm -hmm. you know. And I was like, and I started thinking like, why is that? And this song kind of was. So maybe I just have a bad association with this song because this is whenever I realized this, but like all of the the way that they recorded and the way that they mix 
like they try to leave like a lot of space and get a lot of clarity, but they sacrificed like like there's no like all the drum sounds are like very articulate, but they're really short, and there's no verb on like anything. Mm-hmm. And so at the beginning of the song, like his vocals have this cool verb and delay thing going on. The acoustic guitar is just really spacey and cool. And I was like, whoa, this, this soundscape is so unique and cool. And it's really setting. It is, you know? And then right whenever the band comes in, like all of it just dies. And I'm just like, ah, and then it kind of goes back to, and I typical rush sound in a way that is like, demeaning of rush but more in a way where where it's like the beginning of natural science is very unique and then i felt like whenever it came in with that riff that it like lost its uniqueness because then it just sounded like every other rush song i guess that that's where that's kind of where i sit hmm This song for me, I'll tell my story of this song. I, for a long time, so I had uh, um, permanent waves, but I don't know, for some reason, maybe I had just never listened all the way through the album before because I went about probably uh, 10 years never hearing this song. I think it was because at the time I wasn't as big of a fan of um, Entree New and Different Strings, which now I think are some of the best songs on the album. Entree New is so good. I think Different Strings is even better. I think that that's one of the ultimate dark horses in their discography. Mm -hmm. Um, But I had never listened to natural science before until about 10 years later. And then all of a sudden I remember I just, I had my entire iPod on shuffle back when I had separate things for iPhones and iPods class. Yeah. And I remember hearing the song and going like the intro star. I was like, I don't, I don't know this. What is this? And I look, I was like, it's a rush song. But I never heard this before. <laughs> and I looked, I was like, and it's a 10 minute song? How have I never heard this? <laughs> and I remember I just like stopped what I was doing and I just like stood still because I was at school at uh, at college and I was like walking between classes and I just like stopped. I was like, I'm not walking, I'm just gonna stand still. And I need to hear this song. And I remember it was just, to me, I think that this song like resonated with me so hard because it was just like, I was like experiencing a great rush classic that I didn't know existed. That I was like, you uncovered myself. Yes. And as soon as I heard it, I like started calling people. I was just like, guys, have you heard this song? Oh my gosh you got to listen to natural science right now. Like, and to me, it, it, it actually takes some very interesting turns that I didn't expect from rush. 
because Rush tends to not go into unsettling territory too often, which I, and except for uh, probably the biggest um, exception to being the final song yeah. of the set, which is why I wanted to have this as the penultimate. This kind of sets up a bit of an eerie vibe, even though it does have some triumphant mm-hmm. moments. That main l- lyrical line of the quantum leap forward in time, the universe and it's back. It's kind of, it's this really kind of creepy melody. It's got a lot of tension in it. Yep. And I was just like, this is, this is unique. I'm usually used to kind of like a big soaring rush melody. And this is kind of creepy sounding and like having the, the sound effects coming in and out and then uh, all of the different changes. Like when it switches from that main riff to that, that halftime bop, I was just like, oh my gosh, yes! Mm. And uh, I thought that the outro was super cool and full of tension. And I was—I remember I was—it was in, and I was just like, I am so angry that I'd never heard this, but at the same time, I'm so glad that like I became so familiar with Rush. I'd not heard this that I could really appreciate this <laughs> for the great song yeah. that it was. Yeah. It that whole record is full of underrated songs. People just I, pay attention to the spirit of the radio and then forget the rest of it. And free I think that it and hemispheres are pound for pound their strongest records. Okay. I would not disagree with that. I would Because moving the the problem moving pictures has is witch hunt. Oh, I love I love witch hunt. Witch hunt's not bad, but it's way lower than the other songs. Where hemispheres and and permanent waves don't have uh, a song like that that drags it down. That is true. And, Every song is just about equal in greatness. And farewell to kings has. Um madrigal which sounds exactly like cinderella man yeah both of those songs are kind of weaker songs i'm okay i'm okay with cinderella man i'm not gonna lie oh yeah i'm okay with it too but it doesn't it doesn't compare to the rest of the record where that is true you could with both hemispheres and permanent waves you could put those songs any of those songs up against each other and it would be a pretty good fight. So what is this? What is natural science? What is the song about? This was the song that was the toughest for me to decipher the meaning from. Because I think what it is, is it starts, there's three distinct sections. It's, you know, another reason why you could classify this as an epic is it's got the Roman numeral uh, delineations to it. The first is the um, the tide pools, which is the um, the folksy beginning, with all the sound effects. Mm-hmm. Pretty much, he's describing the push and pull between the natural world and the man-made world, and about how, in the grand scheme of things, we are as significant as the algae that was first making its way through the primordial soup. And he was like, if you go look at a, at, um, a tide 
pool, you see this pretty much this entire universe inside of it. And they all think that their entire existence lives in that tide pool. Mm -hmm. And they think that their lives have so much meaning and so much importance. But there is an, an entire universe outside of it that is so much bigger than it. And I believe that this song is a cautionary tale of not being too wrapped up in our own self-importance and our desire to bend nature to our will. Mm-hmm. I f- because um, it starts, because then the second section goes into um, kind of man's introduction to the world. And about how he starts to introduce chaos and starts to upset the natural order of things. Mm -hmm. And then the third section, which is actually called, and I didn't learn this until I researched for this episode, is called Permanent Waves. And it's where the title of the album comes from. Um, That part goes into just about the philosophy of what we're doing, about how, you know we have to work with nature instead of against nature. Science like nature must also be tamed. We can't use science recklessly just because we can't. It's kind of like the, like a Dr. Malcolm from Jurassic Park. You were so caught up in thinking of you could, and you didn't even bother to realize if you should. Mm-hmm. Exactly. It's a, about, about just trying to um, trying to s- find the balance between um, between man and nature, because if we don't find balance, one will destroy the other. And he's kind of saying, you know, we actually don't know which one it's going to be. Man is so sure that it's going to live on, but it could be that nature prevails against us. So be careful of messing with nature. Because time after time, if flow and recede, leaving life to go on as it was, at the end of the day, life will have its way. Mm -hmm. So we might as well get along with nature because he's insinuating that, that nature will have its way no matter what. It's true. That makes- so I think that I think philosophically this is probably one of the deepest songs he's ever written. Yeah, that is a lot deeper than I thought. I just thought it was about hey, science is cool. <laughs> I always That's thought it why why is it that really long pause at the very end? Um I think that it's it's about putting us back where we were. Um, about kind of saying that this is this is life going on, and also it is the last song on the album, so I think that it's it's a you know kind of leaving the album on a uh, on a just a an atmospheric note, which actually does really help with setting the stage for the final song of the set. But we won't go there yet. Right. I I didn't notice how all the different sections like played into each other. I mean, obviously I knew of the line, like 
uh, swimming in their pools, they soon forget about the sea and how, like, you know, whatever it is, whoever he's talking about is caught up in its own self-interest, you know, or its own environment that forgets about what's around it. And the fact that he's talking about really kind of us... And then I I always assumed this was a environmentalist song, like pretty much only, pretty much um, exclusively, because he talks about like in their own image, their world is fashioned, which is like my that's one of my favorite, you know. That is a great line. Moments in in a Rush song when they go down to that riff and he goes in their own image it sounds so sinister which is so uncharacteristic for Rush like you said but it's delivered uh-huh. so well that it sounds really heavy um, and then also like the fact that like science like nature must also be tamed but the fact that I guess going through all the sections kind of I gained an appreciation for this song that I did not expect. I'm not going to lie. I I put this song at number 11 on the ranked list. It's pretty good. I mean, number 11 on a Rush playlist That's is good. pretty high. <laughs> yeah. So That's high praise. It is high praise, yeah. Yeah, we're, we still have good songs even in our bottom six. But mm-hmm. uh, Yeah, we do. It's other other artists have very much just kind of like with Pantera. It could be a much worse bottom six. It could be a much worse bottom six. Yeah, that is true. And yeah, I guess take Rush's bottom six over most any others. That is true. Um, And Ethan, you're kind of right in the fact that like that opening section, they had a very different kind of vibe for things and. That's sort of indicative of where they were going sonically. In that album, there are parts where they have, you know, entire sections where there's orchestration from different, you know, synths, like the the chorus for um, Spirit of the Radio. And, of course, the next album is the camera, or next album is the camera eye. Next album is Moving Pictures. And there are some involved synth parts there and then after that we we were in the keyboard era and so this is kind of like that indicative maybe it's not that defining moment but it's indicative of that movement towards more sonic scaping that i think this was kind of an, an unfortunate midpoint for this song to exist in so, uh, Ethan, for your kind of uh, for your point of reference, twenty one twelve is the fourth record. So think kind of in terms of how these songs are evolving. Mm-hmm. Farewell to Kings comes after that, which has Xanadu and the last song on the list. Then you have Hemispheres, which has La Villa. Then comes Permanent Waves with Natural Science, and then Moving Pictures with Camera Eye. Mm. Do you, do you yeah. kind of feel kind of with that how yes. how their epics are progressing yeah. and evolving I see that. and changing? Yeah, because even the right. my favorite, the most full sounding parts of natural science is whenever that guitar is kind of playing that um, kind of 
message in a bottle, you know, like kind of doing like they're doing like the arpeggiation with that. Yeah, I mean, that's a great riff. Yeah, that's so it's the most full whenever they kind of have that like kind of that flanger thing that's going on on the guitar with like the the verb. Oh, you mean in that mm-hmm. intro? Yeah. Well, not the intro intro, like the anytime that they go to, there's a riff. It's the wheels within wheels riff. The boom. Which one is it? Yeah. Okay. That sounded like that's that's the main ref. That's the main ref. Okay. Yeah. Okay. When when it comes in before the whole band comes in, but yeah, it kind of it kind of hits randomly. It's like one of the riffs that they go back. It's a reference riff. Hmm. But that's whenever I feel like it's the sound is the most full, but it's because the guitar is kind of creating that like cushion for everything to sit on. I always thought that that was uh, a seven eight section, but it's actually like a a three two polyrhythm. It's three 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 two two, All which right. is fun rhythm stuff that we haven't got to yet I, in music history. I was counting that part in four. <laughs> Yeah, it's just four. Well, but it's like it's bum 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 like and so it feels like it's out of time, but it isn't. Yeah, yeah. And so it always threw me off. And when I finally was like, is this really in seven eight? And so I counted, I'm like, how does how is this in four four? Like only rush can make four four feel like not four four. You know, and make yeah. not four four feel like four four. Although, but then they do have the seven eight section with the yeah, and I didn't know that. That reminds me of a Dream Theater song. Yeah, I don't know what song it is. Although it's uh it's in the presence of enemies. The listeners are going to hear us humming and scatting all episodes. But they're either going to love it or hate it. Yeah. Ski bop deep dup dip dip. Last thing I'll say about this song is that this is one of my all time favorite Neil Peart drum performances. Great one. This is a go to practice song for me. And I noticed because you started jamming on it the other day. Yep. This is this has always been one of my favorites to play, and I think that this brings me to a um, a theory I have about how he puts drum parts together. I call it his rule of three. Mm-hmm. Oh, where he always he always does things in groups of three, and the 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 rule of it being that he always ups the ante every time with the third always being the biggest one. And the rule of three is crazy all over natural science and all over the next song as well. Mm, is it? I, to of. where I think that it's a legitimate thing that he used, maybe even unconsciously, but he actually tends to not do a lot of um, 
fills or grooves in sets of four. They're usually in sets of three. Hmm. Okay. So read into that what you would like. All right. Well, I'm ready. It's finally time to get to the last song. This was in the running for my favorite until we started talking about 2112 and how it relates to their history. And that kind of made me gain a new appreciation for 2112. So that's why I said it was my favorite. But for a very long time, this is this was my favorite Rush song until I, in the last couple of years, switched to Red Barchetta. Yes. This is the first half of my favorite Rush song. Well, the first one-third. And that is Cygnus X1. Woo! It has a weird... In the constellation of Cygnus, there yeah. lacks a mysterious, invisible force. The black hole of Cygnus X1. Six stars. Ah! In mourning for their sister's loss, in a final flash of glory, nevermore to grace the night. Rocket launch. This, this is the creepiest by far song that they've ever written. It's so and, weird. Oh, I, this is another song where I remember exactly where I was the first time I heard it. This is another song that I didn't uh, ever hear until later in my Rush career. I guess I just, I, I guess at the time I wasn't listening all the way through their albums. Because mm-hmm. I would get bored listening through Cinderella Man and Madrigal, so I would just turn the album off. I remember I was up late one night playing a video game, and I just had the sound turned off, and I was listening to music. And I remember this, and it was another thing where I just had my iPod on shuffle, and this song came on. And I remember listening to it, and like I just like stopped playing. And I was like kind of terrified the whole time I was listening. Mm-hmm. Because I was just like, oh, oh my, oh my gosh, this is creepy. Mm-hmm. And I am someone that loves horror movies. I love, I love anything that's scary because I love the atmosphere and the mood that it creates. And I love just kind of analyzing how people create scary moments Mm -hmm. and just going uh, I love how they're building the tension how they're using this to uh, like uh, just several of my favorite movies of all time are horror movies and I think that this is why for the longest time this was my favorite Rush song was just because I loved how this song made me feel Mm. there is really there's only one moment of upbeat um, joy and that's during the 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 verse mm-hmm. when he's when he's on the oh, um, yeah. on the journey when he's on um, the journey yeah on on my ship the Rossinante reeling through the galaxy there's kind of a it's kind of almost joyous it's he doesn't know the horror that he is about to endure mm-hmm. and it's this it's this exciting journey but all before they're setting up this tension of something bad is going to happen. And there is, it's another song with a very long intro before any words come in and they have this brilliant 
um, kind of scaling up of the tension. You start with obviously the creepy intro with the space and you've got, I think it's Neil Peart's voice again doing, or it could be Terry Brown, their producer who has a very distinctive voice mm -hmm. uh, that you might know as the hypnotherapist from Scenes from Memory. Really? Yeah, that's Terry Brown, Rush's producer. Cool. Um, it's some people have said him because there's actually not a credit on the album of who did that voice. Some people say it's Neil. Some people say it's Terry Brown. I think it might be Terry Brown, but I could see it being Neil as well. Mm. Um, so you've got yeah, you've immediately get set the tone that this is an ominous um, presence, this black hole. And then you have that uh, fading in bass riff. I think that, that is the hardest riff that I've ever heard in the rest in the Rush catalog. Hard as in like awesome, or hard as in difficult. As in awesome. Really? Yeah. I don't think that there's there. I've never heard a a riff from Rush that like gave me the stank face as much as that riff gave me the stank face whenever I first especially heard it. when the drums and the guitar come in and even the way the way that they present it where they don't just like give the whole thing to you at the, at one time you know it's just uh -huh. like, and it's well, just it's slowly well, revealing itself. It's like, oh, what was that? And it's like, and like, and the, like, I, I'm just like, yes, frick yeah. And then, and the way <laughs> they do it too, they have a little bit of reverb on that bass towards the intro, so you still have that feeling of being in space. Yeah, that's great. And so it keeps the mood going. Yeah, and then you have, and then you have that um, that really tension building part of the. And it just you just feel the tension continuing to grow, and you just con you continue to wonder how is it going to grow, and then it just stops. And Getty comes in with that creepy, invisible, to telescopic eye, infinity, the star that would not die. Mm -hmm. Ooh, I'm getting chills just thinking about it right now. I know. It's so effective. Do not listen to this song with the lights off, guys. Actually, no, do. Please listen to I, it with the lights off. Scary. Don't listen to it with the lights dim, because that's even weirder. I mean, it's, it's not scary as in, like, I'm going to have nightmares, but it's just, it's it's, it's very It gives you the heebie-jeebies, man. It doesn't make you, it I doesn't give you. I didn't get that. But it does kind of freak you out a little bit. Kind of like, kind of like the, uh, the um, instrumental section to Finally Free. It's kind of the same way. It's not going to give you nightmares, but yeah. it's still going to kind of be like, ooh, you know? I didn't get that vibe. It's this song has always made me feel that way. Um, and so, yeah, you come with that and then, yeah, it kind of, and so the lyrically, 
So this is actually like uh, we were hinting at. This is only the first part of a larger story mm-hmm. of of a man well, kind of somewhere in the middle that. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> we won't we won't spoil what that means yet. Um. So. Uh, a man that we st- we don't have the name for him as is typical in these songs um, the unnamed protagonist uh, believes that traveling through a black hole will take him to another dimension a portal uh, that, that line atomized at the core or through the astral door kind of the, the, the hypothesis is what happens when you go through a black hole is it a wormhole do you do you travel through time and space or are you just completely obliterated obviously we'll probably never know the answer to that because i'm sure no one will willingly fly into a black hole i mean if i had a terminal illness and they could get me there in time well, we probably also would have no idea of knowing what would happen. That's You'd be the only one to know. I would be the only one to know? Yes. But then I would know. Your knowledge would die with then you. Then I would know. So, yeah. And and then it transitions from there into, I, the, I guess we could call the only normal part of the song. Mm-hmm. And I think it's very interesting that it does not last very long. It's the excitement, the thrill of discovery He's he's very excitedly talking about the navigation that he's setting. Mm-hmm. I set a course just east of Lyra, not west of Pegasus, and mm-hmm. uh, heading for the heart of Cygnus, headlong into mystery. But yeah, there's, there's this excitement, the thrill, and then but then it kind of starts to subtly change. The X-ray is her siren song. My ship cannot resist her long. I mean, he knows what he's getting and, into. It's very dangerous. Yeah, because... but it's kind of like it's it, at first it's exciting, but then all of a sudden he kind of, as he gets closer, he's realizing he's heading into somewhere very dangerous. It's kind of like the he he knows what's about to happen, and he's just like, and he's starting to get a little nervous. This song is, and then the the reason why is because this song is very atonal. And there's only that one section of optimism where they're in major. And for the rest of the song, there's not really a key. And so it feels very ungrounded. And so, um, and so then we get into the point where everything changes. When it goes, and it's at that point. For me, whenever I was listening to the song the first time, that like took my breath away. Or I was just like, like that, that like drone thing. The Buddha, uh-huh. Yeah, and you hear the you heard awesome. the hear the tolling of the bell. And you know from that point on that like something ominous is about to happen, which the the bells I think are supposed to symbolize that he's heading to his death. Yeah. And then you just, and I remember it scared me at first when you just have the yeah. And then, and and then it's just because you can. It almost feels like the droning is like a like an an alarm signal starting to sound. Mm-hmm. 
or like the like wind, you like you're right the wind around the black hole kind of sucking you in like a vacuum mm-hmm and then and then all of a sudden all hell breaks loose you can feel the moment right when gravity takes hold of the ship and everything starts to spiral out of control mm-hmm and oh it's i i just think that that is it's all so brilliant the way that it's structured and i mean what a what a freaking nasty riff mm-hmm. and drum groove and and then of course i'm and then i remember it freaked me out when getty yeah. comes in with those shrieking vocals cuz it just it's so it sounds like he's he's losing his mind and I was just like, I've never heard Getty Lee sound anything like that before. Like, even at his most aggressive and his most um, freakish, there's always still a sense of control and melody. Here, it just sounded like he was screaming in pain. Because he was. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then, of course, you've got the final, the final line sound and fury drown my heart every nerve is torn apart which is actually the highest he has ever sung in his career the highest note yeah there's a, there's a like running he... there's a running joke that the lyric should be every vocal cord is torn, torn apart because that's what it sounds like oh my gosh yeah exactly I didn't hear that running joke but that is exactly what it sounds like and then you have the final ending with the with the those haunting guitar chords. Yep, like nothing ever happened. Which well, is well, almost like there's nothing left. Yeah. Back the oblivion, the oblivion that I always like to end yeah. our sets on. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, this is another burden, guys. Now this uh, is this is actually not the end of the story though. And I intentionally wanted to put this here as the end because this is a cliffhanger. This is not the end of this narrative. We will actually mm-hmm. um in uh, a future episode uh see the end of the story. I kind of wanted to intentionally leave you guys oh. hanging with this with what happens here because the whole the whole concept is that you end Farewell to Kings with the first half of the story and then you open the next album Hemispheres with the second half of the story only Rush could do a cliffhanger (laughs) on an album (laughs) on two unrelated albums really and uh, this is and the second half is the title song like what and uh, I put this song as number six on the ranked playlist. That's pretty high. I don't know if I would put it that high, but I mean, when you look at when you look at the songs, I, I don't know, when you look at the songs that come after it, which is uh, Tom Sawyer, Xanadu, La Villa, I I put Hemispheres at number two, and then Twenty One Twelve. I mean that is very, very stiff competition. Yeah, because it's better than it's better than those three by a narrow margin. 
I would say for Xanadu and mm-hmm. Levi- Lavilla, that's going to be hard to not say Lavia. So yeah, I mean, how did uh, what there. how did the ending of this set leave you emotionally, Ethan? Kind of what what place did it? Leave I you liked at? it, especially now knowing the story behind like the guy going to the black hole. I think it's <laughs> I I liked the cliffhanger ending. I liked the I like that it just kind of goes into madness and chaos and then it just kind of like ends. I I like the the tension mm-hmm. of it. Cuz it would have been the easy the easy way out would have been to end on some like phantasmic, you know, like big yeah. thing you know so I like that it's like and I think that this is the most tension out of the six songs you know so I thought it was a smart move mm-hmm. to put it at the end because there's there would have only been one thing to do had I not put it at the end and that would have been to follow it up with hemispheres but I wasn't ready to do that yet <laughs> I was totally expecting that to happen because I tell you all the time that I consider those the same song and then so I was like ooh he's gonna like I don't know be nice to me and put hemispheres at the end and then you didn't I I was really sad but I think that I think that you made the I have big plans for hemispheres you're gonna be glad you're gonna be glad that I switched them up because okay. it's gonna it's gonna get I hope to shine in a very special way in a very different type of episode. I I think I think you made the correct choice because it sort of leaves you on a note of wanting to know what happened. And I hope that that translates for the listeners to want to listen to more rush because I love rush. And Lucas loves Rush, and Ethan has a general I love appreciation Rush. For Rush, Rush, Rush. So, well, you know what I mean. Yeah. Like Rush is a great <laughs> band. I hope that the the listeners enjoyed this. This set very and that, this that, very that long episode. What is this? This this, this section yeah, very just by itself was like too, over two hours. Yeah. We still have yeah. final thoughts and after hours. So we'll go ahead and we'll go ahead and Woo! take another break right here, a much needed break, and when we come back we're gonna give our final thoughts. So stay tuned. Hey everybody, it's Ethan and welcome back to the Good Music Podcast. We just got got done with our second part, which was our six song set list from Rush which was 2112 Overture, Xanadu, The Camera Eye, La Villa Strangiato, Natural Science, and Cygnus X1. And now we are on to our final segment, which is Final Thoughts. And so, Grant, uh, how has this set list and our discussion changed your thoughts about Rush? I'm going to be honest, I didn't think it would at all. I thought that I was going to come in here and talk about 
all of the things that I liked about these songs and that was going to be it. But talking about these songs in a way that I've never thought about talking about them before, it grew my appreciation for them as a band. And, and Neil as a lyricist, too. I mean, I know a lot about their history and, you know, the bits of trivia and whatever, but I've never really pieced it all together with their music. And looking into Xanadu versus Fountain of Lemneth and looking into 2112 and how it relates to both lyrically what it is and how it relates to them and their situation at the time as a band, it kind of makes you think about like how deep do the Neil Peart lyrics go? And it kind of has opened my eyes again to him as a lyricist, which I didn't think would have ever happened ever again. But this episode did that. And so I'm really glad that we did this episode. I really hope that any Rush fans listening got something of the same new excitement for Rush as a band, because I certainly did. Um, I've been listening to them for a while, and I feel like once again, I'm excited to listen to them um, for new things. Even though I've heard every single one of their songs that's not a cover, because those don't count to me, um, it's just, it's, it was an unexpected jolt of excitement is the way that I have to sum up what this episode did to me. Final thought. <laughs> I think for me, so in the first episode that Lucas did, we're always, we're always introducing in the first episode, it's like, here's the band. If you've never listened to them before, here's what you need to know. In the first set, you got, I mean, we had Tom Sawyer, YYZ, Limelight. Those are kind of like the, the big three, you know. We also, there was other songs on there. But, like, those are usually the songs, like, whenever people think of Rush, those three songs are, like, the three songs. And so I, I had listened to some more Rush stuff. Lucas had showed me a bunch of Rush stuff. I had an appreciation for them because I appreciate uh, Neil Peart um, and Prague in general. But I think what this did for me was with the epics, it, it highlighted more of like that they're like they're not just like Prague. And this sounds weird to say on the episode about the epics for a Prague band, but. I feel like in epics and with longer works of music, you get to see more sides of the songwriting aspects of the band because they can't just like YYZ is just, it's, it's a prog song like the entire time. You know, like with no, it's like a relentless prog song and it's unashamedly that um, Tom Sawyer is kind of the same. It's a little bit more poppy, but with the songs that were on the set list today, it was like, you you get a little bit of ballads and you get some tension and release and you get some weird chord progressions and you get prog, but you also get, I mean, they're just throwing everything that they have at the epics. And so you get to see Russia's more well-rounded band. And that's why like my, my favorite um, 
Rush song has changed because if I would say previously it would probably would have been Tom Sawyer, um, and now it's uh, the Villa Strangiato with um, twenty one twelve and Cygnus X one being close seconds, um, and so it's cool that my favorite song changed, but it's also it's it's mainly because I didn't know that Rush. Um, I, I kind of had them pegged as like a prog band and I didn't really listen for anything else for them other than prog like I didn't care about their like acoustic stuff or their slow stuff or their story driven stuff so it was cool to see them in a different light that wasn't just musical and that's, mm-hmm. my, that's my final thought seeing them as, as storytellers yeah, just you get to see, uh, I guess, a greater depth and breadth of songwriting that isn't just like they're like it's like I already know that they're good musicians, and this kind of like kind of turned the diamond a little bit to see the other side where I was like, oh, they're not just like really accomplished musicians, like they're actually good writers and good, mm-hmm. um. Like they can make me feel something other than impressed that they're good musicians. But <laughs> that's a given that, um, you know, a prog band would be good songwriters. But I guess I can I can see what you mean about it's not just about you know, wanking your instruments. Yeah, that it's 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 you know not just about look how many cool crazy things i can do on my instrument but rather about creating a truly solid song underneath it all like being able to and darn it i already forgot um i already forgot i think yeah at the beginning of natural science where it's just like it's just a weird vocal and a really cool sounding acoustic guitar and a, and they wrote a melody over it. And it's like, that's good. Like the fact that they can make that good. It's like they, it's more than just prog. Mm-hmm. The way that people, I guess would normally think about prog. Yeah. There are certain bands that have given prog a bad name. For better or for worse, Dream Theater has kind of done that. Um, I know for a lot of people I know, they just they see it as just oh they're just they're overdoing it. They're just playing so many notes and there's no, it's all style, no substance. And you cannot at all say that about Rush, not with not without being very ignorant. Mm-hmm. Because well, if you really, yeah. yeah, I would disagree with people, but I, I can definitely understand that. Yeah, because there are times where it's just like it's almost overwhelming the amount of things going on at one time. I think that there's a there's a stereotype for every genre that at surface level, like there's like the poster child stereo bad stereotype for every genre. Mm-hmm. It's like, like for a long time, I had a disdain for country music. I just had this stereotype in my mind that like all country music is just hokey 
and terrible and and it's worse than pop it's more sellout than pop lyrically you know but it is but like you have a couple of people where like it is but -hmm. then you have people where it's like country is like like good songwriting is good songwriting yeah pretty much the problem with country is that most of it is popular right now most of the bad stuff but like jazz yeah. for a long time jazz had a stereotype where it was like it's boring and it's like well the stuff that is at the surface level that everyone thinks of off the top of their head like yeah because like all the stuff they play in jazz band like there's is lame like nobody like mm-hmm. or they or they think of elevator music and, and the yeah or kenny g and then, like, I think whatever, whatever people think of Prague, they think of Dream Theater, who is a great band, one of, like, the the formative bands for me in terms of, like, my technical chops for drums. But, like, you have to get into their discography a little bit to be like, oh, they're more than just, like, absolute monsters on their instrument. And that's kind of where I was with Rush, where I was like, okay, yeah, YYZ, Tom Sawyer, those are the songs that I know, and so that's what they've that's got what crazy they parts and yeah, um... that 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 must be what they do. Those are their, those are the most popular songs. They're prog. They're just a less sophisticated dream theater, and we'll just move on, you know. And mm-hmm. until you look into it more, and you're just like, oh, they're actually good, you know. <laughs> yeah, they are in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Thank goodness took them a very long time to get there shame i know they're they're only one of two pure prog bands that are in there now it's of the three prog groups that are in there they are the only ones that are there for being a prog group because genesis is in there because they're a pop group and Yes is in there because of what they did as a pop group. Mm-hmm. But Rush did never have that period where they were a pop group. They were just a prog group the whole time. And they got in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame purely on that basis. And I guess I'll I'll swing over into my final thoughts then from there. Um for me, it's it's you kind of think like with Grant because I've said before how like there's really hardly any band that's more influential on me than Rush um, because of all of my four pillars, Rush is the oldest pillar in my musical um, building, my house. It's it's the one that's been holding everything up the longest. Neil Peart was is the most influential musician on me because he was the first musician to get me to really care about any instrument, and that was drums. And um, they were the ones that really got me into listening to more sophisticated music and really paying attention to the intricacies and the layers behind everything. And I owe probably a bigger 
debt of gratitude to them than to any other band just because of where in my life I discovered them. And it was at probably the crucial formative part where I was really starting to develop my taste and what I liked. Um, and yet I did find myself growing even more throughout this process. A lot of it coming through really dissecting a lot of the lyrics close up. Um, I felt like I really got to know Neil Pert, the person, very well through examining all of his lyrics and uh, made me really miss him. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm so sad that he is not here anymore to give us any more great works of art because that's what they were. And at the same time, he was so... He was a wise man. He um, he had a great way of communicating these deep things in very simple ways. He never got up in his own butt about trying to shroud everything in really smart sounding terminology he he was almost just like he was almost like a like an uncle that you were yes. close with that just that just would just tell you let me tell you a story or let me tell you about the the way the world works and there was no condescension about it it was just like a close relative that you looked up to was telling you about the world and about his life and I I don't think I'd ever felt that way until researching for this episode. And um, I mean, yes, we we've said Neil Pert's name tonight probably more than anyone else's. Um, but just for me specifically as a drummer, that was what the initial draw was. I love Getty and I love Alex. Obviously, Rush would not at all be what they were without them. But Neil was always the one that I connected with. Mm-hmm. He he was my inspiration. He was my um, he was my go to. He was the one that every time I listened to him, I had to get back on the kit and and play. I had to I had to learn that part. Every time that I was discouraged about my drumming, about thinking to myself, oh, I'm not going to ever be the level of drummer that I want to be. Rush was always the band, and Neil Peart was always the drummer that pulled me back in and go, come on, just work a little harder and you can do it. And... Uh, I will just forever be so grateful to all of them for the great music that they've given us. And of course, you know, now it's obvious that we will never again have Rush music, which is a sad thing to think about, but 
you know, we can now celebrate everything that they have given us. So, yeah. With with that very uh, heavy, um, final thought, we'll go ahead and wrap up the episode. <laughs> Uh, thank you, everyone, for listening to what is f- surely going to be the longest episode we've ever made. Uh, we want to thank our patrons, and for those of you that would like to be patrons, uh, there's a link in the description of the episode to sign up. We're going to be having a fun after hours where Grant's probably going to say his first ever curse word Whoa. at me. I don't know if it's that intense, but we'll see. You'll have to, we'll you'll see. Have to look on Patreon, I guess. Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna entice you with that. <laughs> um, also, in the link of the uh, or the in the description of the episode is another link that takes you to a Spotify playlist. Please go listen to these songs. You've heard us talk more passionately than usual about a set of songs. So um, it would be very sad if you did not um, go and listen to them. So make sure that you check them out. We are on social media and Instagram. Social media and Instagram. Goodness gracious. Facebook and Instagram. Facebook and Instagram. Thank you. And go check us out there. And leave us a comment. Let us know what artists you would like for us to cover next time. We promise that we are listening and we do have some uh, suggestions that are going to be coming soon. And with all that, I'm Lucas. I'm Grant. And I'm Ethan. Keep on listening to good music. <laughs>